Dude, you got to get on Starlink. I know, I know. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> Fix up this latency in a heartbeat. Seriously. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 7 of Acquired, the podcast about great technology companies and the stories behind them. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today, we are talking about SpaceX, the company that will this very week be attempting to launch humans into space as a private company and make the United States a spacefaring nation for the first time since the end of the space shuttle program, which unbelievably was a decade ago. David, how crazy is it that it's already been a decade since the end of the shuttle program? And also how crazy is it that we haven't sent humans to space as the U.S. since then? So crazy. I remember when that happened, just like how disappointing that was, which makes what's about to happen so exciting. Yeah, because I mean, there was no date set for when it was going to start again. We decided... Okay, the shuttle program's coming to the end. You know, it was expensive, it was dangerous, and it had its mishaps. Um, and there's plans for stuff that's coming next, but there wasn't, there, there was no date, there was no plan, there was no mission. And so now here we are, almost a full, uh, a full 10 years later. With a date, a plan, and a mission, which we'll get Indeed. into. All right, so listeners, uh, here's the things that I knew about SpaceX, more or less, before we started researching. They're the first private company ever to launch a rocket to orbit, recover it, and reuse it. They can do all three of those things simultaneously, uh, where they bring two rockets back down on land and one rocket back down on a boat almost a thousand miles away. Pretty unbelievable. They're, of course, led by the controversial genius, Elon Musk, Uh, or I should say genius entrepreneur. Yep. Um, And of course, he has a plan, um, many would argue a credible plan, of getting a million human beings to live on Mars. But until I dove into this mountain of research, I didn't understand the company's truly amazing business model, the winds of change going on around the company in the space industry at just this moment in time, or really how they were actually going to be able to pull any of this off. So what is the business? Uh, Who pays them? And for what? And what's with all these satellites that they've been launching recently? So today, David and I are going to dive into all of that in full gory detail. (laughs) Yeah, we are. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, a few announcements before we get into it. If you love Acquired and you want more, you can become an Acquired Limited Partner. Our most recent episode was a crash course in fundamental startup concept pricing with Patrick Campbell, the founder and CEO of ProfitWell. So Patrick is literally the world's expert on the topic. And so we brought him in to dive into how you should price software because most people do it wrong, how you can raise your prices and still have that be okay for your existing customers and things like what's the proper way to do a, a free trial. So um, if you want to join, you can get access by clicking the link in the show notes or going to glow.fm slash acquired, and all subscriptions come with a seven-day free trial. And also come with access to our monthly LP calls that we've started doing, which I don't know about you, Ben, but they are super fun. Super fun. We've had a lot of awesome LPs joining us. Super great chat and just like an amazing reminder of the incredible people that listen to this show and our LPs. So can't wait for the next one. Great way to get to know so many of you. 
For our sponsor this episode, we have ZoomInfo. ZoomInfo is an awesome business and product story that is totally in the acquired vein. Totally. This is an amazing under-the-radar entrepreneurial story. Henry Shuck, the CEO of ZoomInfo, actually founded a predecessor company back in 2007 called DiscoverOrg from his law school apartment. They were dedicated to helping sales professionals find the right contacts at the right accounts so they could stop digging for prospects and focus on closing deals. And then in 2019, DiscoverOrg actually acquired ZoomInfo, another big player in the business data space. Yes, they kept the ZoomInfo name, and the combined company has grown way beyond just being a contact data solution. They've actually created this full-stack B2B revenue growth platform on top of it. It is super cool. ZoomInfo actually went public in 2020. They were the first real tech IPO after COVID hit, and they have continued to expand their product suite, and they've just done phenomenally well. It starts with the best business data in the world, whether that's company, contact, or intent data, and this data fuels ZoomInfo's actionable insights, engagement platform, automated workflow capabilities, and so much more. It is the single best way for B2B professionals to find their next customer or close their next deal, streamline their operations, and build the best team possible. And best of all, it is all in one place so your revenue teams can collaborate seamlessly and close deals faster. So if you're in B2B and you're wondering how can we drive more revenue and who's not, how can we find, acquire, and grow accounts that are looking for our solution right now? How do we make our sales and marketing teams as productive as possible? How do we automate our go-to-market motions to both supercharge our growth and save money? ZoomInfo is simply amazing. They now handle the full revenue pipeline from marketing to sales, even ops, all based on the number one ranked business data. Yes, customers include enterprises like Snowflake, Workday, PayPal, Dropbox, Unilever, and thousands of startup and growth companies, 30,000 customers, and counting. And here's something really cool. ZoomInfo is making their go-to-market playbook available for anyone to try for free. You want to find out how you can use intent data to target key prospects or how to revive a stalled deal by expanding your buying committee outreach. Head on over to acquire.fm slash zoominfo to see the zoominfo plays and just tell them that Ben and David at Acquired sent you. Yes, definitely. And our huge thank you to zoominfo. And now, David, over to you to take us into SpaceX. Wow. Where to even start? <laughs> well, the place to start, listeners, if you haven't already, uh, go back and listen to our Tesla episode, which was now a couple of years ago, which is um, just crazy. Man, we got to revisit that because <laughs> a lifetime has happened to Tesla since we recorded that episode. <laughs> um, but in that, we talk obviously a lot about Elon uh, and uh, his background, him as a person, some of the crazy things that happened to him that have uh, turned um, him and his personality into the unique uh, brew, the unique blend vintage that it is. Um, but just to by quick way of background uh, to catch everyone back up on it. So Elon obviously was born in South Africa. He grew up with a pretty insane family um, and even in an even more insane time to grow up in South Africa with apartheid and all the terrible violence that was happening there. Um, and he wanted none of it. He wanted to come to the US. He thought America was the land of opportunity. He thought it was where things could happen. He was particularly interested in space and sci-fi and making the future uh the present um and so he basically at age 17 hitchhiked his way from 
South Africa to Canada, um, lands in Canada, uh, and then ends up going to the University of Pennsylvania. Um, from there, he makes his way out to Silicon Valley. He starts two very successful internet companies, one of which was a little company called PayPal. <laughs> and somehow in, in true Elon fashion, managed to get himself ousted as CEO of these two internet companies, at least three and potentially four times, which is pretty impressive given that it's only two companies. This is X.com and then, I'm sorry, before this, this is Zip2 Zip2. and then X.com, which merged in to become PayPal. Yep. First company, Zip2, got ousted as CEO. Second company, X.com, his employees staged a coup. That's the one that you may or may not count then the board removed him then uh he came back quickly then they merged with paypal confinity.com which had become paypal then the board removed him again <laughs> uh so all of this so happened- before you start your rocket company have all these experiences to form you and and then see what happens let's just play that yeah, experiment out exactly well so this unique brew of uh, life experiences for this man who's only 29 years old. He decides after in October of 2000 being ousted for the final time from uh, the newly merged PayPal that he's had enough. He is done with Silicon Valley. He's hanging up his spurs. He is walking away from it all at age 29 with about $200 million, some of which a small amount of which coming from his zip two sale earnings and a large amount of that from his um, equity in PayPal and a silver McLaren F1. Oh, by the way, we didn't talk about this on the Tesla episode. Did you know, Ben, that he and Peter Thiel were driving said McLaren F1 up Sand Hill Road to go meet with Sequoia Capital one day? Peter asked him what this thing could do. Elon said, essentially, hold my beer. And they end up (laughs) spinning it around, completely totaling it, being an amazing stroke of fate that they do not die um and then they end up going to the meeting afterwards with the car totally wrecked (laughs) my god i knew they totaled it i had no idea it was with peter or going to sequoia uh that uh that's like almost too um thank god they got away with their lives i mean this is elon we're talking about here um so a lot of this history comes from the great great ashley vance uh biography of elon appropriately titled elon musk because what else are you gonna title a biography like that um and uh and ashley writes to take this into spacex now uh, and set the stage ashley writes about what is going on with spacex he says with spacex musk is battling the giants of the u.s military industrial complex including lockheed martin and boeing he's also battling nations most notably Russia and China. And then shortly after, he has a quote from Elon. He says, my family fears that the Russians will assassinate me. <laughs> Man, and you thought online banking was rough. No kidding. And and how do you think about Elon at this point in time? Like, is he a like, rich tech guy who now wants to get into rockets, much like the many sort of billionaire types before him who want to start a rocket company? Or what's... You're referring to Jeff Bezos? (laughs) Well, I'm referring to the litany of people who have started a rocket company, bought one rocket, crashed it, and given up. I mean, there's like uh, people who have started all sorts of companies um, have then gone and done this as their second act when they, you know, have a God complex. And uh, yeah, there's... It's interesting that you almost always, it's, it's, uh, well, 
always it's men that do this. It's like little boys growing up wanting to be astronauts, make yep. a bunch of money, then decide to go create some spaceships as their toys. And that's what everybody thought Elon was doing here, <laughs> including all of his friends, which we'll get into now. So it's October 2000. Uh, he's just been ousted. He's decided he's leaving Silicon Valley for good, like literally like metaphorically leaving, but also physically leaving. He's going to move to Los Angeles because space is now what he's going to do with the rest of his life. And, um, the aerospace industry is, is primarily headquartered in the Los Angeles area. And so he's going to move there. He's going to make connections and he's going to figure out, uh, figure out what's next for him. And, Kind of amazingly through all this, this also says a lot about Elon. Despite having been <laughs> ousted from PayPal twice, he remains really retains really good relationships with uh, with all the team there, including Peter and Max and and um, you know all the PayPal mafia and and uh, Ruloff. Uh, and so one weekend, PayPal is starting to really take off at this point. They're not public yet, but they're starting to figure things out. The whole team, including Elon, goes to Vegas for a weekend. And uh, Kevin Hartz, uh, who was an early angel investor in the company, is interviewed in, uh, in Vance's book. And he talks about that they're sitting, he says, we're all hanging out in this cabana at the Hard Rock Cafe. And Elon is there reading some obscure Soviet rocket manual that was all moldy and looked like he had bought it on eBay. He was studying it and talking openly about space travel and changing the world. Uh, so this is like, everybody's like, okay, man, this guy is like gone off his rocker. Yeah. And, and he's not sort of like hiring someone to go do this for him and saying, put my name on it. Like, I'm going to flash way forward to today, but he's the, he's effectively and maybe even entitled the chief engineer. I believe he this. is entitled. The chief engineer. Yeah, like I think I've heard the NASA director refer to him as chief engineer of SpaceX, Elon Musk. Like he was a sponge, like a, a he would go find resources on rockets and just go like suck all of the information out of physics textbooks and physics professors and you know exactly what you just pointed out, rocket manuals. Um, <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want my I don't want my question from a moment ago to linger too long feeling like I'm mis mischaracterizing him. Elon is absolutely not a eccentric billionaire who now decided to get into space because there's nothing else to do. Like this is sort of the plan all along and online payments were sort of this brief exit from the highway before he got back on to go and, and really run at this big problem. Yeah. Well, it was a way to get, um, get all of these resources. So when he lands down in LA, he gets hooked up with a nonprofit organization called the Mars Society. And Elon's been percolating on Mars. Uh, he talks about, um, he when he first started thinking about all this, he goes to the NASA website and he's expecting on the NASA website to find, you know, all sorts of great plans about the future and exploring space and in particularly Mars. Like it makes sense that people should go explore Mars. We've been to the moon and there's nothing there. And so he gets really disillusioned. He's like, I kind of want to make like, I've got some resources I want to make a grand gesture. He's not thinking about a company. He's not thinking about a business. He's thinking about something to inspire people uh, to get back into space exploration. So the Mars Society, this is their charter. So he uh, makes a $100,000 donation to, um, to the Mars Society. He joins the board and he starts meeting all of these aerospace people in uh, LA and, um, and not just in LA, of course, back up in Silicon Valley, there's NASA's Jet Propulsion, Propulsion Lab uh, in Mountain View. And so Elon, he's, he's mostly down in LA, but he's going back and forth and he starts organizing these Saturday salons, he calls them, where he's just getting together 
industry leaders in aerospace and at JPL, both in LA and Palo Alto. And um, he's just kind of like, there's no agenda, but he, he kind of lets it be known to all of them that like, he's got some resources. He's, you know, a dot-com rich guy and he wants to make a gesture and like what could be done on the order of kind of 10 to 20 million dollars so they start to coalesce the group on this idea of building a quote-unquote mars oasis and the idea behind a mars oasis is that they're gonna buy a rocket and they're gonna put a plant on it (laughs) and they're also gonna put a robot on it and they're gonna shoot this rocket to mars and when it Lands on Mars. I can't remember if the Mars lo- rover uh, had landed at this point. I, th- I think so was a thing. Uh, the lander that was um, the one that I remember was a really big deal that I think found ice. Yeah, uh, I remember we, that. The, the, the Mars Phoenix lander uh, was somewhere like 2008. And so that hadn't happened yet. Um, but I think the rover had. Yeah, I think the rover was there. Anyway, it wasn't like, I mean, it was kind of crazy. That obviously, everything about this is crazy. But, you know, you could sort of piece together how you could string along somebody that this could happen. Yeah. Um, so they were going to put this there. And then the idea was that the robot was going to create a greenhouse and then was going to put the plant in the greenhouse and let the plant grow on Mars. And then they, the robot would have a camera and it would have video feed and kind of like the, you know, the whole earth picture that the first Apollo astronauts took of, uh, of the earth oh, from yeah. the moon, that this would be a live video feed of a plant growing on Mars and it would beam it back over the internet onto a dot com site <laughs> and inspire the people of the world to explore space with this. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Sounds great. So, so the purpose being sort of like inspiration, a uh, little bit of like a philanthropy stunt. You, maybe even like a, um, you know, some kind of performance art project, uh, not to foreshadow what's going on in Elon's life today, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of the idea. There's one problem though, and nobody in the group in the salon group is really willing to tell Elon, you know, he's thinking he's got, you know, probably 10 ish million left over from, uh, the sale that he made. He made about 20, I think 22 million from the sale of zip Two, his first company. He's probably got about 10 million left over. He thinks he can probably scrape together maybe 20 million, maybe take some loans out against his PayPal equity. That's, that's yeah, his and, budget for this. And, and David earlier, you had said that number 200 million, um, that obviously would come later when he did get liquid right. on those PayPal right. shares. Now he's only got sort of this 10 to 20 million from the first company. Right. Yeah. He's, you know, he could, he will end up being with $200 million in liquidity, but at this moment, uh, it's all tied up in PayPal. So the thing that none of these space experts want to tell him is that like he's off by an order of magnitude on the cost of this thing. <laughs> uh, and uh, 10, 20 million isn't going to cut it. You're needed more 100, 200 million, $300 million. So Musk though, like he's very, um, you know, he's singular in his focus. And so he keeps pushing forward on this and he comes up with this idea. I think this was his idea that the way he was going to make this happen was he was going to get a deal on a rocket by instead of using a, you know, purpose built, uh, space launching rocket, he was going to go over to Russia. And remember this point, we're not that far removed from the, um, you know, <laughs> dissolution of the Soviet union. Like it's kind of the wild west right. days like in Russia at this point. to 2001. Like, yeah, we're, we're now in 2001 and Musk's idea is he's going to, go over there 
and he's gonna buy an intercontinental ballistic missile (laughs) (laughs) because the soviet union has disintegrated and you can like kind of do that in russia these days apparently there's an open market where you can go and buy you know well maybe it's not open but it's you know it's gray it's it's uh that's right didn't he have some sort of like shady not shady but uh a connection like well, there was we'll get into to sort that. of like help him figure we're this about out. to get into this we we should also contextualize here uh i think to be able to actually buy one of these in the u.s through more appropriate channels like if, if you could actually get your hands on one i think it's something like 65 million dollars like it, the 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 reason to sort of look elsewhere is there's no way you're getting one here for any reasonable amount yep he thinks he's gonna get a, a deal by buying a missile and converting it into a rocket uh this is like you know cue the uh cue the james bond you know villain theme here uh uh so he goes over there he he uh he hears well he hears from his network that there's a guy who can maybe make this happen and that guy's name is jim cantrell and so jim lived in utah he's an american and he had worked for nasa and also the french space agency uh and ended up doing a lot of actually like super classified collaborative missile defense projects with the Russians. I don't know if this was during the cold war or just after Mm -hmm. where they were actually working together on, you know, missile defense. Um, so he knows the Russians pretty well. So he tells the story one day he's, uh, he's in, he's in Utah. He's driving. He gets a call on his cell phone and he says, this is in, in Vance's book. This guy in a funny accent said, I really need to talk to you. I am a billionaire this is Elon, by the way, Elon is not a billionaire at this point. (laughs) I am going to start a space program (laughs) and Musk apparently refuses to give Cantrell his cell phone number. Uh, and Musk made the call from his fax machine line. (laughs) He's like starting to get paranoid about what this is going to entail to go try and buy a missile. Um, so Musk asked Cantrell to, if there's an airport near where he is and if he could meet the next day and Cantrell says, my red flag started going off. And then he's, he's fearful that one of his enemies is trying to set him up. He says, okay, I can meet you at the Salt Lake city airport, but only behind security because <laughs> he wants to make sure that these, it's actually these, really smart. I mean, he's used to dealing with the Russians here. Just like it's a, it's a good, if I ever want a super high security meeting, like now I know how to do it. Yeah. Go to an airport. It's probably, pretty empty these days in the coronavirus you can have a very private meeting um (laughs) so cantrell rents out a conference room in the delta lounge at the salt lake city airport uh (laughs) and they meet they end up hitting it off and cantrell's like oh okay like i mean this guy's something but he's not totally crazy and so he says he agrees he says okay i'll go back to russia with you um and i can i think i can help you buy a rocket so at this point, Elon's friends all basically try and stage an intervention. Uh, they create like a compilation video of rockets blowing up. You know, they come up with all the stories, Ben, you were mentioning of everybody who's lost all their money doing this. He goes forward, but um, one of his best friends from college, Adeo Resi, who uh, started the funded.com and founder Institute is not a great entrepreneur in his own right. He says, I'm going to come with you. Like he's like the, the friends must have like nominated him to kind of keep tabs <laughs> on Elon. So the three of them, Cantrell, Elon, Resi, and one other guy end up going to Russia and making a pilgrimage to try and do this. The other guy who goes with them is a guy named Mike Griffin, who they get introduced to. Uh, I'm seeing, Wait, Mike Griffin uh, yeah, went on... Ben's no face right way. now. <laughs> we'll come back to Mike Griffin later in the episode. My God, I have Mike Griffin 
listeners in my notes i won't tell you where or what his title was but uh wow it's the same mike griffin yeah ben and i were talking before the show and i was like all right there's gonna be a thing like just wait just wait listeners there's gonna be a thing about mike wait so what's mike's role in this so he comes over to just be part of this um what's the right word like emissary entourage maybe (laughs) to just kind of you know make introductions and meet with people see how one would go about buying an icbm from russia yeah i mean you could call it an icbm you could call it a rocket to get to space which is what you know the intention here is so mike he had worked at nasa earlier in his career and then he had run incutel which is the um it is part of the the government but it's the uh, cia's kind of venture arm for investing in commercial ventures that are going to be helpful to um the government so, you know, who knows why Mike was coming with them? You know, again, he's, he's coming from the government. He's coming from Inkytel. Maybe he's keeping tabs on everything that's going on here. Uh, so he comes along and uh, it basically goes as you would expect, listeners. <laughs> they meet with a bunch <laughs> of Russians, you know, Cantrell and maybe maybe Mike sets, set up some meetings. Um, and they kind of go like this, you know, Va- uh, Vance describes a bunch of them in the book. You know, they walk in. They sit down. There's a lot of, you know, the first thing that happens, of course, is vodka shots. And uh, Vance talks about one meeting where uh, they do, everybody in the room does vodka shots and the Russians are toasting uh, to America. And uh, that um, that probably should set, you know, some some red flags off there for everybody just in the get-go there. <laughs> um, and then, you know, they chat for a while. They're not really talking about anything related to buying a missile lunch is served you know a couple hours go by and then finally they get around to like so the purpose of your visit Um, and for anyone who's ever met with any of elon's companies let alone elon himself like this is not how you get to have a meeting with someone at spacex it's quick it's to the point it's how fast give me really good reasons for everything and let's move on and like elon is the personification of that type of meeting yeah so he starts getting really frustrated by all these meetings and finally you know by the end he's he's had enough of this kind of russian way of doing things and he just starts coming out like right after the vodka shots like i want to (laughs) buy i want to buy rockets you know here's my offer and he's he's calculated he's willing to offer um the meeting with one group this is the last group they meet with i think has either two or three rockets he offers them eight million for um uh, for the two of them and they're like yeah how about eight million each each (laughs) and uh they um needless to say they don't come to a deal so everybody leaves the meeting by the way they're there in the middle of moscow and russian winter which is obviously awful pretty depressing i've been in moscow in february and it is like uh it is like freeze your face off cold so it is it is literally february 2002 (laughs) when this is happening Wow. Yeah. So let's let's recap dollars real quick, just so everyone has a because because dollars are going to be an important thread through this um, through this whole story, not just because this is an expensive endeavor, but because the, the scale of dollars to other dollars is important to think about of how would you go about solving this problem? So Elon's basically got one hundred and seventy million from PayPal of post-tax dollars. Once the acquisition happens, which Once is not for another happened, which five Which didn't months. happen yet. So yep. he's got 20 million total now. Um, but, you know, he'll, he'll eventually have 170 million. And, and um, so 
the the that number that I quoted, buying a, a a rocket like this from a U.S. company that manufactures, it's like sixty five million dollars. So you know he's trying to buy him for eight, 8 million um, for 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 two of them um, in Russia. So that keep those sort of relative dollar amounts in your head. Of course, the deal goes blows up. He doesn't actually end up buying them, but um, yep. that would have been what it cost him. And he couldn't, you know, even if he were willing to put all his money into this, he couldn't do the sixty five million dollar launch because that's just the launch. Like you know, then you got to like get the stuff there you got to build the robot you got to set up all this stuff like um oh, i'm sorry that, that 65 million that i'm quoting you is literally to buy a rocket from oh interesting yes i didn't realize that you couldn't even i guess you couldn't at that point in time just walk up and like reserve a launch spot on a rocket this you is, had to actually this is 2001 buy the yeah who 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 can you just go and say hey i want to yeah huh. imagine if there were a company that did that and, and also, I, I, t- I take that back. I think such a concept did exist, but I think it would have cost you $150 million to $500 million, quoting some mm. of my numbers that we're going to sort of bust out later in our future cost comparisons. Wow. Wow. So, okay. So, back to February 2002 in Moscow. They leave the meeting, this, uh, this motley crew. They get on the airplane and uh, and they you know head back to to the U.S. Uh, on the plane and Cantrell um, uh, <laughs> talks about this. He says, um, <laughs> "Whenever you get on a plane in Moscow, particularly in 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 February, heading back for the st- for the states, he says you always feel particularly good when the wheels lift off in Moscow. It's like my God, I made it." <laughs> so he and Griffin, <laughs> you know, they're veterans here. They you know call over the drink cart and they start you know celebrating getting out. Meanwhile, Elon's sitting in front of them, uh, and he's just like furiously typing away on his laptop, silent. And they can't you know figure out what's going on, and. Uh, and about halfway through the flight, he turns to them and he says, hey, guys, I think we can build this rocket ourselves. And then he hands them the laptop <laughs> and they look at it and they're just like dumbfounded. Elon has this spreadsheet on his laptop. This I don't know if it was it must have been Excel, like Google Sheets didn't exist at this point. He's got this Excel doc and it's like a hyper detailed spec sheet with costs and all the materials needed to build a rocket not necessarily a rocket that would get them to mars but it's like you know it's real and um and so they're they're stunned and they say how did you build this (laughs) well it turns out elon had been reading a lot of soviet rocket manuals (laughs) and he had also met as um part of this kind of group of advisors he'd been putting together, he met this guy named Tom Muller. And Tom had worked at Hughes Aviation. Hughes, of course, being Howard Hughes back in the day. Speaking some, of uh, of billionaires who started rocket companies. Indeed. Um, and then moved on to TRW Space. And he was kind of known in the industry as a real savant about engines. Like probably the best, um, most impressive rocket engine engineer in the world and musk had had gotten in touch with him and uh and met him and started asking him all these questions about how rocket engines work and what needs to you know go into building a rocket and he had helped him put together this spreadsheet so it was it was pretty damn good so they get back to the u.s and then basically a whole chain of events gets kicked off that ends up in 
SpaceX uh, and uh, tomorrow, an American company launching people into space. Yeah. Uh, another, um, just to keep the dollars thread going, I think it was, I, I can't remember exactly which of the sources it is. We David and I have 20 or 30 different sources that are in the show notes um, where you can go and read, read more about this. I want to say this was originally from a SpaceX engineer, but um, pointed out, if you calculate the cost of goods sold for aerospace-grade aluminum alloys, plus some titanium, copper, and carbon fiber on the open commodities market, it's about 2% of what rockets cost. And I want to plant that seed because the the question in your mind throughout all of this should be where, why is this expensive? Like, obviously this is expensive. It's almost unfathomably expensive. When, whenever you hear about anything in this industry, contracts awarded cost of a mission, NASA's budget, which by the way, uh, in the last 20 years has gone from about 1% of our federal uh, budget down to about half a percent. Um, it was as high as 5% in 1969 yeah. at the height of the space race. So just interesting to think about that. The, the, the question in that's your mind should be- That's of the US government budget, by the way. These yes, are the that's numbers correct. That's of the, the entire federal government. Yes. Yep. Um, but so it's immensely expensive, almost to the point where it's- you. you you can't even discern between the millions and the billions. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to sort of paint a picture here where you really should just try and figure out every single time you hear a high number, why is it expensive and where does the money go? And of course, you can't make a rocket just by throwing commodities at a wall. So um, you're not going to get it all the way down to 2% of what that rocket costs. But 2% uh, being sort of like the hard materials... I, I'm not someone who's in a industrials job, but I have to imagine that in most manufacturing businesses, um, the actual hard materials are much more than 2% of the final sticker the, price of, the, uh, of whatever the rolls off the line. Yeah, the bomb versus the uh, MSRP. Totally. Well, and this is, you know, Elon, Elon studied physics in undergrad in addition to business. You know, he is a physicist and this is the question he asked himself. He's like, you know, yeah, like this is hard, but at the end of the day, these are atoms and like, you know, it's a bunch of gas in a tube, right? Like that, that's what a rocket is. <laughs> um, right. And so this is what he's putting together in the spreadsheet. So they touch down back in the US and basically at the same time, PayPal finally goes public. Uh, and right after, so even they were the first, we talked about this with, with Ruloff in our adapting episode with, with, uh, with Ruloff at, at Sequoia, who was at the time the CFO of PayPal. They broke, you know, they were the one bright spot in the, in the dot-com, you know, the Russian, Russian like dot-com winter. Um, the stock pops 55% right after the IPO. Uh, so Elon sees this, he's got this spreadsheet and something clicks in his mind and he says, you know what, this isn't just a gesture. This isn't just a inspirational thing I want to do. I can actually disrupt this industry. I want to build a company. I can take, you know, all of this cost blow that's happened in this industry, um, use my spreadsheet, use my connections and, and do this for real. So he gathers up, you know, they, they walk off the plane. He gets Cantrell, he gets Griffin, he gets Muller, uh, the rockets, you know, <laughs> literally the rocket scientist and a guy named Chris Thompson, who is an aerospace engineer at Boeing. And he says, let's do this. Let's start a company. Nonprofit is dead. I'm going to start this. I'm going to fund this all myself. PayPal is a liquid public currency. The lockup will be over soon. I can get out, exit my stock, and I'm willing to go all in on this. So, almost all in. <laughs> almost all in, indeed. Greater than half in. Greater than half in. Now, he hasn't yet met J.B. Straubel and gotten introduced to the electric car scene. Uh, so at this point, he's 
he's thinking all in. Um, the one person who everybody's in except for, for Mike Griffin, uh, he lives on the East coast. You know, he's the former Yankee tell guy. He says, you know, look guys, I'm a little farther on in my career. I'm a little more senior. You know, this is all a great adventure. Best of luck. I'm rooting for you, but I'm not going to move out to California and, and do this. Uh, and that ends up being a very good thing for SpaceX that he uh, <laughs> did not do that, as well, we will now, see. Like, I'm like learning in real time from you on this episode. I had It's a very good thing for, for SpaceX that uh, this is how it should be. Very out. good thing for SpaceX and the world that he did not do that. Um, everyone else, though, is in. Cantrell's in for a few months. He ends up leaving a, a few months later. But in June 2002, they officially incorporate space exploration technologies and then the very next month, in July 2002, eBay buys PayPal for $1.5 billion. And Elon now doesn't just have a liquid public stock currency. He has $180 million plus in straight-up cash that uh, that he gets out of PayPal. And at this point in time, he says, you know, remember, he's been ousted three or four times from the two companies he started in the past. This is going to be his life's work, his next company. He says, I don't want any any chance that anyone could kick me out here ever again. I'm not taking on any outside investors. I'm putting my entire fortune into this. I will fund it all myself. Yep. It's mine. <laughs> um, and the super interesting thing is, you know, Ben and I, we, we were talking about this. Um, we were texting about this all told over the life of SpaceX. I think Elon has only put in about a hundred million dollars into yep. the company versus Bezos uh, at Blue Origin puts in a billion dollars a year um, and so many other you know people that have entered into the space industry uh, just well, become money pits. That's a good, let's, let's plant that seed uh, because yes, SpaceX is very revenue funded instead of yep. sort of equity funded. Of course, it's very equity funded too. This is a company that has a, what, $35 billion valuation today and has over $3 billion invested in it um, yep. from not- Much of know, which is secondary. Outside of Elon. Yeah. Uh, oh, interesting. Good point. Yeah, I think much of which is, is secondary. Okay. Um, well, the 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 point I want to drive home here is uh, SpaceX was founded, and there's two. There's one thing that's known about the company at this point, and one thing that's not super solidified, at least as far as I can tell. The thing that is known is we're we're going to freaking Mars. Like we're figuring this Mars thing out, and we're going to start by lighting a one engine candle on fire and like we're gonna we're gonna figure out how to you know take baby steps here so that part is figured out the part that's not figured out is what you'll find in the very first paragraph of the wikipedia entry on spacex which is this sentence they are an american aerospace manufacturer and space transportation services company it is very very important to understand spacex today is both of those things and they are different they are a, a company that makes stuff for aerospace yep. and, and may well one day run a business on that. And then they also have this business where they're basically a logistics company to ship stuff up to space. And that latter business funds the former business. And I think the, the missing puzzle piece that sort of comes along that um, lobbies for SpaceX to do that is, is not yet in place yet. Yeah. Well... So the business plan for this new company, and again, very, Elon is very insistent this is now a company, is that he's seen all this cost bloat in the industry. He thinks they can do much better. And he realizes really the hard part about launching things into space is the engine of the rocket. And he has the best 
rocket engine engineer in the world, Tom Muller working for him, they're going to build their engine completely in-house. And then the idea is that the initial, initial idea is they're going to go to third-party suppliers and commodity folks and get all the all the rest of the stuff together and work with, work with contractors. Kind of like... Um, you can imagine the business plan, ironically, is sort of like the traditional Detroit automotive companies where they make the engines and they make the finished products, but everything in between the engine and the final car comes from a whole network of suppliers. Yeah. Yeah. A horizontally integrated company. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so the plan is, this is what they're going to do. They're going to build the engine and... Um, they're going to start launching in September 2003. It is now July uh, 2001. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's uh, that was the some wishful Elon, Elon thinking. Classic, yeah, <laughs> classic. Uh, it may have been the first, the the beginning of the Elon timeline because in software, you know, you can ship that fast. A little harder in uh, in hardware. Um, we should also say like there's a there, and this I think is from from the Ashley Vance book as well. Like the way that Elon calculates these deadlines is like he thinks about it about literally how long would he sort of like builds a Gantt chart in his head and then he tries to compress all the minutes together and then he also tries to apply a speed acceleration there where he says look like I would work on this really fast all the time so anybody that I'd hire would also do that and so he basically creates this like ultra ultra compressed Gantt chart that's massively sort of like uh, has the Elon multiplier on it and that's sort of how he expects the work to get done yep yep so they decide they're going to name this first um, rocket the Falcon 1 after the Millennium Falcon, of course. Um, and uh, since the rocket is named Falcon and the key is the engine, they're going to name the engine Merlin, which is a type of uh, a type of Falcon. Also, I, I wasn't able to find, I don't know if you were, if this was intentional or not, but the Merlin engine actually has a storied history as a different type of engine, which is the Rolls-Royce Merlin engine, um, I, which I powered all of the, most of the British uh, air fleet during World War II and the Battle of Britain and was like storied for being its power and reliability and, um, you know, helping uh, the Allies win the war. That threw me for an SEO loop because I was uh, I was searching for information on the Merlin and uh, kept getting this Rolls-Royce thing. And I was like, what the i thought spacex always made their own engines <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't that be funny if rolls royce made the spacex engines that would be the ultimate irony based on where the company would end up today and their sort of strategy and principles i know i know um okay so they get to work building the falcon and the merlin <laughs> working with all of these you know the network of contractors and suppliers being you know a horizontal uh, horizontally integrated company um and uh, they pretty quickly find that it's not just Boeing and Lockheed and everybody who is uh, subject to cost bloat and time bloat and project scope bloat in this industry. It's all the contractors all the way down. Uh, so Elon starts asking questions of these guys and, pretty quickly. And this isn't just like two levels of contractors. It's not like, well, I'll sub it out to Boeing and then they'll sub it out to someone. This is like, like uh, it's turtles all the way down type type thing like there's Seriously. this like, crazy recursive loop where yeah it's everywhere so elon of course starts asking questions and people in this industry aren't really used to 
questions being asked of them. Um, and he starts figuring out that some of these components, whether it's, you know, um, part of the shell for the fuel tank on the rocket or some of the avionics components that contractors are charging hundred thousand, multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars a piece that they can just manufacture them either in-house fab them in-house or use off the shelf, you know, consumer grade electronics and computers for, you know, 1% or less of the cost that, uh, that these contractors are quoting them. So he says, all right, screw it. We're not <laughs> just like Tesla. We're not going to take the Detroit, you know, approach to this. We're going to vertically integrate. We're going to make 90% plus of this rocket in our own factories. Which is wild. I mean, the SpaceX sort of um, coyly talks about how uh, raw material rolls in one side of the factory and rockets roll out the other side, and and they almost like talk about it like, well, minerals show up on the left side and rockets show. It's not quite that. They they do have a network of suppliers. I think the number is three thousand suppliers and eleven hundred that supply them product every week. Uh, but the way to think about it is those suppliers are just sort of like way lower level like they're more the raw you know material um you know think about sheet metal and wiring rather than fully assembled you know motherboards and uh you know fuselages this is like it's it's kind of a crazy undertaking because really in business the 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 theory is only take your core competency in-house and outsource everything else outsource everything that can be commodity but there were so few players in this industry and so like such limited number of customers on the demand side that like there was a very specific way that it was done and that way just involved this wild scattering of subcontractors each of which had to make their own pro- product profit margin and yeah. so you end up with this stacked like margin 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 and as uh, um uh, someone who we will talk about here shortly uh, brings up in a in a speech. It, her quote is, "It's exponential GNA that you get when you have multiple layers of integration." And I've never heard someone describe it so aptly that, of course, this is exponential because every time somebody needs to make their thirty percent or whatever it is, that's on the previous person's thirty percent or whatever it is, and I bet it's a lot higher than thirty. Yeah. Well, and let's think about who the end customers were in the space market, <clears throat> mostly you know, pre-SpaceX, well, and even now post-SpaceX, uh, they were governments, you know, primarily the mm-hmm. U.S. government, but also other governments around the world. These are entities like, A, a lot of these contracts are done on a cost plus basis, which, you know, by the way, side note, playbook theme. If you ever, as an investor or an operator, encounter a situation where there is a cost plus contract uh, as a way of doing business, you need to either, if you're an entrepreneur, disrupt them as soon as possible, or if you're an investor, run the other way. Because with a cost plus, literally, it's you get a there's the cost of what it costs to make something, and then the contractor makes a percentage profit on the cost. So the incentive of the contractor is to make it cost as much as possible so that their absolute dollar profit as a percentage of the bigger number is bigger. Like it's nuts. Yeah. It's a great point, David. And and I think, you know, it's ambitious, but it, it still seems silly that this is a company that is both best in class at, you know, creating motherboards 
for this purpose and best in class at writing software and best in class at creating rocket engines or, you know, top three in class at creating rocket engines. It's like an insane and number operating of those rockets. And right. That's the other thing is they, yeah, they are the operator of the final product. Yeah. They vertically like integrate everything. It's just, you know, it's, it's obviously it's a 7,000 person company now, but it is just shocking how many core competencies they need to be excellent at. Yeah. So, okay. So what's the business model for all this? Like what's the target market? So Elon, you know, he comes from this internet industry, you know, new, you know, PayPal, new markets, lots of demand, um, you know, highly rapidly growing markets and all the folks that he surrounded himself with who are instrumental at SpaceX, they're all the, these are the bleeding edge of the bleeding edge folks in the space industry. The people who like Boeing and Lockheed aren't moving fast enough for them. So they think there's this concept in the space industry at the time um, and has been for many, many years that small satellites are going to take over and there's going to be this big democratization of the space market. Um, you know, and where, whereas it was just governments and big satellite companies that were launching big stuff into space, there's going to be small sats and cube sats. And now like everybody, there's going to be this massive opening of the market, kind of like there was with PCs and then with cell phones. Um, and that's who SpaceX is going to try and serve. Exactly like PCs and cell phones. Like if you think about it, the reason that a lot of these CubeSats can do what they do is because we've got, you know, a few billion smartphones out there and we can massively bring down the cost of, of uh, you know, the really innovative stuff that goes into creating something that, you know, fits between your hands outstretched. Yeah. And it, uh, it really amazed me doing the research. We've all heard this story about... Um, space and small satellites uh, in recent years with the venture funding in the space. But this was the story even back in 2002, 2003. Like it's, <laughs> that's true. That's a fair point. This is five years before the iPhone. And, yeah. You know, eight, nine years before smartphones had scale. So people, people were yeah. always thinking this and, you know, it, I think it will materialize in the future, but the reality is it didn't quite materialize for a long time, the, a big market there. And so at this point, SpaceX makes a critical critical hire that Ben you were alluding to earlier a woman named Gwen Shotwell and Gwen is just an incredible force of nature <laughs> in uh, every dimension today she is the president and COO of SpaceX and runs most of SpaceX at the time uh, runs most of SpaceX today at the time she was the first salesperson and so she had come actually interestingly vice president of business development David sales <laughs> Oh, it was sales, <laughs> uh, which, you know, in, um, Elon's, uh, world is, is, is a, uh, is a good thing. Um, yep. and, uh, so Gwen started in the automotive industry, uh, earlier in her career, but then moved into the space industry. And she says, Hey, wait a minute, guys. Like, so everything around the, the company was architected to sell to this emerging market of small satellites, like the Falcon, the, the Merlin engine was incredible. It was the most highly efficient rocket engine ever built, but the Falcon one using one of these engines was a pretty small rocket and could get just small satellites up. She said, yeah, I think it's was, it was like 70 feet tall. Does that sound right? It's like, it's not call exactly when you think about walking up to a rocket and marveling at sort of this, this skyscraper structure, like that's, that's not what the Falcon one was when I sort of like made a joke earlier about, you know, strapping a rocket to a candle, like it's tall, but it's not that tall. 
no i mean compared to like um saturn 5 or something like this is this is just a, a little bean shoot <laughs> right. um and uh so gwen says you know yeah like let's go pursue you know try and sell to these small guys. but honestly the market like she knows the market and she says it's not there but i think you guys are I, I think she's the one who says this you guys are missing something the big players the governments uh, the big satellite guys, the Department of Defense, NASA, they're also interested in what you're doing. Like they don't like it that they are paying so much money for all of these uh, rockets and these launch uh, operations that they need. Uh, you know, if we can prove to them that we can actually do this, we can get some money out of the big boys. <laughs> and yeah, uh, and 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 Gwen importantly spent a decade at. Um at the aerospace corporation and microcosm. So she sort of like knew the way that this industry did business and sort of knew the way that money flow around, uh, floated around knew like what the different total addressable markets were. Like, I think Elon probably didn't have a pie chart uh, on his computer of sort of like segments in the TAM for sending stuff to space. Like Gwyn lived in that pie chart and, um, she was the second tab of the model yes and when we were alluding earlier to uh uh, of course my comment on on gwyn with um the the sort of uh benefits of and cost savings of vertical integration but also to the the sort of dual business model of of spacex the sort of owned and operated things that they send up versus the hey we're a shipping company she sort of is the force behind hey we're a shipping company and that's going to fund the rest of this operation yeah like proof of concept um (laughs) of the falcon one let's load it up on a truck and let's take it to washington dc and just park it in front of the i think it was in front of the faa not the pentagon um (laughs) but the engineers are like what are we doing this is crazy this is like just showmanship but um but it works they get the attention of dc that's crazy. And I think I remember too, is something like it's a more shiny, nice, idealized rocket than the one they were actually designing. But uh, it had the SpaceX yeah. logo on it. Yep. So meanwhile, the Tom and the team are working away at building the Merlin and the rocket. And, um, and, and of course, the original. Uh, well, so the original uh, goal was to fly in 2003. That gets pushed to 2004. And then finally in 2005, they're ready to go. And Gwen has managed to land not a small satellite deployer as um, the first customer, but the Department of Defense as a uh, they're starting to experiment with launching smaller satellites. And so they want to say they say like, okay, we'll we'll take a flyer on you guys. We'll put up a small satellite. You've never sent a rocket to space. Like, let's take our satellite and we'll put that right there in the nose cone in the fairing of your uh, (laughs) of (laughs) of your of your rocket. So so they do. they believe they're going to launch out of Vandenberg Air Force Base, uh, just north of LA in uh, in California. But uh, typical bureaucratic red tape. Also, because um, uh, there's some competitors that may or may not also have some launches going on at Vandenberg at the time, may have forced them out. They have to go find another site, so they scour the world. They find an abandoned, uh, not abandoned, but a, a not currently used space in the Pacific Ocean between Hawaii and Guam and the Kowajalian Island, uh, Islands or Quaj, uh, which is part of the Marshall Islands. Yeah, I think it's the Kwajalein Atoll. The Kwajalein Atoll. And um, they basically, they ship the rocket and they ship the company out there. They say like, all right, we're going we're gonna to set up a, a rocket launch site there. 
Yeah. Um, All right. Well, let's let's talk about this. So the launch site is on Omelek Island in the Kwajalein Atoll. And so uh, if you work for SpaceX at this time and, and you have to go out there, um, here's how you do it. So you take a five-hour flight from LAX to Hawaii. You stay overnight. Uh, you catch the 7 a.m. flight to the Marshall Islands, which, of course, makes several stops in the, that area of the Pacific because you're not, you don't just have a everyday back-and-forth single shot to the Marshall Islands. This is like a place where, in fact, I think my high school guidance counselor went on the Peace Corps there. Like This is a remote, remote location. Um, also, sadly, a place where we tested lots of weapons in, uh, in World War II and I'm sure many other times. So then you get to the Marshall Islands. You then have another hour-long boat ride to actually get to Olomec Island. So you're like every time you go out and back, I mean, it's like a multi-day experience that you're putting up with changing time zones all over the place just to to do your job, which is top 0.1% in terms of cognitive requirement to do that job. Yeah. And spoiler alert, a good portion of the company spends most of the next three and a half years <laughs> going back and forth to this island. Um, they initially think they can launch in November 2005. There's a valve problem. The launch gets canceled. It takes them until March of 2006 until get, they get all systems go again. They ignite the Falcon 1. It takes off. It starts climbing. Everybody's going nuts. And about 25 seconds in... It blows up. <laughs> and remember, it has the Department of Defense, uh, you know, experimental yeah. small set in its fairing as its payload. That gets blown out of the rocket, ends up falling through the roof of the building uh, of the launch facility there. Mostly ends up surviving. Oh, I didn't realize that. Um, yeah, a lot of the rocket ends up getting blown into the ocean. Um, but uh, Elon notes in his... Uh, post-mortem from the event it is perhaps worth noting that uh those launch companies that succeeded also took their lumps along the way spacex is in this for the long haul and come hell or high water we are going to make this work so they're not deterred it takes them another year to attempt a second launch march 2007 this time they make it three minutes into the flight um the first stage uh of the rocket had separated the merlin engine did its job uh, fantastically the second stage kicks in the kestrel the smaller kestrel engine and uh that's going to take the rocket and the payload up into orbit everybody's cheering high-fiving then as it says as ashley says in the book it starts to wiggle <laughs> and this just yeah. i can also imagine this must have been so demoralizing so two things I want to point out here. One is, and I remember like thinking about this the first time I watched Apollo 13 when I was a kid, like they don't know exactly what's going to happen when it goes up, but you can model a lot of it out with equations. And so you do, and you run computer simulations and you know, you do your best, but you don't, what if you didn't think of like just one force that's going to be acting at one point during the journey and in this case, the one force that they either didn't think of or that, you know, it just, you know, was miscalculated in some capacity is that I th it was either the fuel or some kind of fuel. coolant was like sloshing around, yeah, causing I, it to spin. It or was causing that it to everything functioned perfectly as it was going up because the fuel tank was mostly full. But then when it got to the second stage and the fuel tank was 
getting down towards empty and there was all this empty space in there, it started sloshing around in and in the body of the rocket and that started started it wiggling and moving around in a circle and then eventually it sloshed so much that there was an air bubble uh and the air bubble got into the engine and it and exploded uh up almost into orbit god that just must have been so demoralizing i mean to be especially after just having the last year yeah whole year yeah i think it's this is a good place to like just just um do a all systems go on uh, on our terminology here because uh, listeners, as you know, David and I, neither of us are in the aerospace, but I'd say um, know enough to be dangerous here. So it's it's worth just articulating some of the terminology we're using and what are these rockets. So the things that that's the big main body of the rocket. I'm going to work my way out from the bottom. Is called the first stage, and this is where um, all that liquid fuel is that gets it up. Not all the way to orbit, maybe all the way to orbit. Um, it basically gets it off the ground. It gets it through the thick atmosphere of the the um, close to the Earth, and it sets it off on its sort of uh, uh, more horizontal journey to to um, start orbiting. And of course, the um, engines are sort of the uh, attached to that, or in this case, in the Falcon One, uh, just the one Merlin engine. So. That goes up, and David, you mentioned the stage separation. So the first stage sort of falls back toward Earth. Uh, nowadays, it can land, then it couldn't, um, and uh, and you know splashes down somewhere. Just casually dropped that. Uh, yeah, nowadays it can land. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't it? Even, doesn't it feel barbaric? Like. Okay, I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, some of SpaceX's competitors have rockets that the first stage, when they come down, they splash down into the ocean and they're useless. Doesn't that feel barbaric? Yeah. Like, it was mere Crazy. a few years ago where it was the most amazing thing in the world that, oh my God, we vertically oriented a rocket and then we can sort of like clean it up and then we can use it again. And now you're like, wait, 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 I'm sorry. It's just wasted. It's just like you can never, it's just trash. Like it feels like uh, like you just threw it's at the bottom um, of the ocean. Yeah, a, uh, yeah. It feels like I just like finished a Lacroix and then threw it directly in a trash can. And it's like, like the a, um, you know that scene in uh, in Mad Men. I think it's in the first season, maybe where um, the Draper family is out on a picnic in a park. And they just, yes, and they just dump all the trash from the... All the they pick up yes. the blanket and just kind of shake it and all of it just gets... And then they just walk off like happy yeah. family. <laughs> I take it back. This is like finishing your Nalgene water bottle and then throwing it in the trash. It's like, yeah. it's amazing how your perspective changes. But anyway, I, I, I digress. So we uh so we've got through that first stage then you've got the second stage of the rocket or um you know the the this is the part that does something out in space this has another engine on it david you just mentioned the kestrel engine that's the smaller engine that's sort of better for little maneuverability out in space because these uh merlin and then later the um what's the current remind me the uh, oh, uh raptor yeah, the Raptor. These are powerful freaking engines. Like, if yeah. you're going to go try and dock it against something, that's going to create a problem. This is and a so you big freaking baseball this, bat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the Falcon Punch. And so you've got this, uh, you know, smaller stage that has a, a single, you know, smaller engine on it. So that's the second stage that we're going to talk about. It does stuff in space. Then there's one more thing on top, and that can be one of two different things. One is uh, a payload that is um, contained within, I think the right way to say it is within a fairing. I think uh, so. Or yeah. maybe within fairings. But basically the, the fairing splits into two. Um, those things fall back toward Earth, and then it's got something in there. It's got, for yeah. example, a satellite or a bunch of satellites in there. 
Um, the other configuration is that it could have a capsule on there. Uh, that would be a spacecraft that, you know, humans could operate one day. Who knows? And so... Um, uh, that's sort of the the structure of the rocket and the terminology that for a long time when people talked about the multiple stages of a rocket or I, my eyes would sort of glaze over. But it's uh, at least in SpaceX's case, because it's a relatively straightforward design, um, it, it's it's good to just sort of keep it in mind so you can go, oh, OK, and follow along. Yep. Yep. So they were so close. They were so close to actually doing this, being the first imagine. private company ever to launch a satellite into orbit. Um, and then right at the last minute it, uh, it failed. So they're undeterred, um, in classic Elon fashion, he says, not only are we go for number three, we're go for, uh, so this is the Falcon one, which was both the first and one engine, one Merlin engine. They had been, Tom is Muller's genius. Uh, He and Elon had been thinking about, this isn't just one. This is a modular system. And, uh, you could, you can have multiple of these engines put together and build bigger rockets with the same engines. And so the idea initially was they were going to have the Falcon one and then the Falcon five, which was going to have five Maryland engines. And then the Falcon yeah. nine with nine Maryland engines. Elon says, not only are we undeterred by the second failure, we're going to, uh, go full steam ahead with trial number three, try number three with the Falcon one. I'm green. I'm killing the Falcon five to green light the Falcon nine, all systems go development on that <laughs> while we haven't even launched the Falcon one. Now there was a big reason why he did that, which we've, we've this been building up for the whole episode. Worked, but when we add eight <laughs> but, more and an octoweb around that engine, it will really work. It will really work. Uh, and to be fair, the first stage did work. So, uh, that, that, that second launch was a success by some measure, although they never could have delivered whatever payload was, uh, you know, on the second stage and going into space. Yep. So the third try, again, takes them a year to the summer of 2008 when they are finally ready to to give the third try at the Falcon 1 launch from the island to go. The first attempt on August 2nd, 2008, they have to abort the launch at T minus zero seconds, but they've got a they've got a launch window. The weather's cooperating. They're going to try again on the same day. They go later on that same day it all starts working well again. And then there's another <laughs> failure uh, before the first stage is even finished. And uh, um, Elon only has so much money. I know. I know. It's just like, it's crazy. So Elon is what put, a, so we said a total of a hundred million into, million into SpaceX. I think he said at some point that that was enough for three or four, and I'm quoting the wait, but why or piece from four. Tim Urban here, which was great, which is three or four launches. Right. But that's cool because, you know, hey, look, like he's deep into this. He said they're going to do this hell or high water. He's put a hundred million in, but he made like close to 200 from PayPal. Right. So like he's good for it. Right. No, he's not <laughs> because this is 2008 and two things had just happened. This is summer of 2008. One Elon has now summer of 2008, he takes over as CEO of Tesla and he's pumped almost all of the rest of his money into Tesla. 70 million. 70 million. Um, and two, Lehman Brothers is about to collapse and the world is about to, the financial world is about to <laughs> go nuts. So good luck raising money. Uh, so internally, like he keeps a cool head to the company and externally, but internally he is like freaking out. So what does he do? He calls up his old friends 
from PayPal who are now at Founders Fund. <laughs> hey, remember that time we were in a McLaren? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he calls up Peter uh, and Peter's uh, Peter's partners at Founders Fund and says, um, yeah, I didn't want to raise cap- outside capital, but I guess if I'm going to do it from anybody, I'll do it from you guys. <laughs> um, Peter, so, you replaced me as CEO once, so there's no way you would do it again. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, I don't think that was Peter's choice to replace him at PayPal. No, I don't think it was. Um, and... Uh, so Founders Fund in the summer of 2008 invests $20 million into the company. That is enough to very quickly turn around for a fourth and what would be final attempt <clears throat> to first do the first successful launch of a Falcon 1 the very next month in September 2008, uh, the same month that Lehman Brothers went under. They finally succeed in a launch. And it's crazy. They don't even. They only have a dummy payload at this point in time. The only customer that uh, that trusts them that, that Gwen has been able to to rustle up is, um, I believe, the Malaysian government. I think to launch yes. a communication satellite. The and Malaysian that was government till the next one. Yes. Well, the Malaysian government didn't even trust them enough that it wasn't going to blow up. So they said, "All right, we'll like." we'll let you take us up. But, um, on this one, you got to put a dummy payload on there. And like, if this works, then you're going to do another one and you're going to take our actual satellite up. Yeah. And (laughs) revenue for, uh, these Falcon one launches was pretty low. It was something like like 7 million million bucks. Yeah. Oh, wow. So they get, that's even Uh, the initial price was 7 million. I don't know if they'd raised it by, by this point in time. Well, they, they only ever did five launches of the Falcon one. So um, they did. couldn't Couldn't have climbed too high. So they finally, exactly, they finally succeed. Elon gives a speech afterwards. In classic Elon, he says, well, that was freaking awesome. <laughs> there are a lot of people who thought we couldn't do it. A lot, actually. But as the saying goes, the fourth time is the charm, right? <laughs> there are only a handful <laughs> of countries on earth that have done this. It's normally a country thing, not a company thing. My mind is kind of <laughs> frazzled, so it's hard for me to say anything. But man, that was definitely one of the greatest days in my life. <laughs> now, to be fair, he has family and five kids. And so, yes, one of, but like <laughs> oh, classic Elon. I think probably for most people here too, we showed people we can do it. This is just the first step of many I'm going to have a really great party tonight. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> so Elon. Was he on the quad? Like, or do you know where? I believe he was there. Yep. Okay. Cause this was it. Like everything was riding on this and he had taken out a loan against his SpaceX. Or he was about to take out a loan against yep. his SpaceX stock to fund Tesla at this point. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a whole nother story. I suppose that's worth telling here too. Well, we'll get into that in one sec. But um, the coda on this is that finally in in, in July 2009, they did do a fifth launch uh, of the Falcon 1 to get the actual Malaysian satellite up into orbit. But by this point in time, they had already moved on to what was going to be the real business model here, which is the Falcon 9 and government contracts. Yep. And again, the real business model of the space shipping company. We're, we're, we're still, uh, very far from the, Hey, we, uh, we own a, a rocket and we're our own internal customer. Like we also own things that we're sort of operating in space. We're very much, Hey, we're a shipping company. We're a shipping company indeed. So remember a little bit ago when Elon and Gwen, uh, put the model of the, uh, the Falcon rocket into DC and started, you know, currying favor there and, Remember all the way back to that trip to Russia where the guy Mike Griffin was along for the ride. Well, guess who's head of NASA at this point? Mike Griffin. Mike Griffin. Uh, Just incredible. 
Uh, and he was a Bush administration appointee, if I remember right. Indeed, he was. Indeed, he was. And then I believe he he resigned uh, amicably when when the Obama administration took over. Um, yep. So this is right at the end of his tenure. Tenure, like literally the eleventh hour. We're talking here at the end of December two thousand eight, and through presumably through Mike and other contacts, Gwen and. Elon had found out that NASA was going to bid out a resupply contract, a new resupply contract for the International Space Station. And this is going to be a big, big contract. And NASA was maybe open to a new entrant in the space potentially taking on this contract. Yeah, I mean... uh, Reflecting back, now understanding uh, the who the NASA administrator was at the time um, makes a lot of sense how incredibly fast SpaceX was able to build and and be awarded this contract. I'm sure they went through all the proper review and everything, but that relationship has to help. Uh, I do want to give a little bit of context to listeners on, on sort of what a big shift this was in space policy. Like if you think about the Apollo missions, like NASA would design something. It was the NASA engineers, and then they would bid out these sort of subcontracts to to different people. And like ultimately, it was a NASA owned and operated vehicle that they paid enormous amounts of money to someone else to build, and then they'd run their own missions on it. And this is, you know, uh, over many more decades than um, sort of getting compounded. Things get more expensive. Um, they're bidding out more and more and more. If you're, you know. Northrop Grumman or Lockheed Martin, like you then have subcontractors under you and on and on. And this is a huge policy shift where NASA is basically saying, well, instead of us just subbing out the manufacturing, let's just tell people, hey, our statement of work is we need to get this thing, the ISS, and like we will pay you to do that for us. Whoever and can do that's it cheapest it. and best. Yeah. Like that's that's all we're asking here. And that's like a staggering shift in policy that enabled this to actually happen. The 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 nuts and bolts of it are um, COTS, the Commercial Orbital Transportation Services, um, that later led to other contracts for both cargo to go to the ISS and people to go to the ISS. Uh, but this is a what they call a Space Act agreement, which is it's sort of like a contract where the you know the NASA's done a ton of these over the years, but this time frame we're talking about this 06 to 08 time frame is when they really started to use them to say, "Hey, can uh, one of you be a shipping company for us?" Um, and and yeah. we'll uh, we'll fund you helping to build your UPS trucks and figure out how to design those. Um, but then you get a big contract for doing the shipping for us. And you may know this more than me. Was was Mike kind of the architect of this huge change in policy for NASA? Uh, he was. I don't think the architect, but it was definitely under his watch and a big, a big shift for sort of the industry that he's sort of credited with kicking off. Yeah, I mean, this is this is so huge and um, incredibly visionary. I mean, without this change in the way NASA operated, like there'd be no SpaceX, there'd be no, none of all the innovation that's happened in space. Like it's incredible. So 
the thing is, you know, for, for SpaceX to bid on this contract, they got to be able to get like stuff, like a lot of stuff up to the ISS. That means you need a lot more than the Falcon 1. So back, remember when Elon canceled the Falcon 5 and said, we're going straight to the Falcon 9. This is what it was all about. They needed the 9 to be able to get up to the ISS and bring enough stuff up there. So this is crazy. Like 2008 is winding down. We're in December 2008. Like Elon is literally running on fumes. Like he's not going to be able to make payroll at either Tesla or SpaceX uh, for like the January 1st, 2009 payroll on December 23rd, two days before Christmas, they get the news from NASA. They have one, they're, they're two winners, two companies get the contract, they split the contract. SpaceX gets a big part of it. $1.6 billion payment from NASA to fund, I think it was 12 missions, cargo missions up to the ISS. And it's just like game changer. Remember they were charging, you know, $10 million on the order of that for like a space for a Falcon one launch. Um, you know, this is, uh, this is $1.6 billion for 12 missions. Just, completely changes the company. Um, so at this point, then <laughs> Elon does a whole bunch of stuff. He also has, he's quoted in the Ashley Vance book as he says, it's like the, uh, uh, flipping and he doesn't say flipping matrix, uh, the moves, the financial moves that he was making to stay alive at this point. So this contract comes in, he takes out a loan against his SpaceX shares. Um, Unreal. he, uh, he's an investor in a company called Everdream that gets, which is a hosting company gets acquired. He gets liquidity from that. And he's able, like he's able somehow to make it out of this with both Tesla and, uh, SpaceX surviving him with SpaceX at this point, like completely set up to transform from these ragtag geyser launching, you know, rockets from an island in the Pacific to like, no, we're going to Cape Canaveral. We're launching out of the Kennedy Space Center. Um, yeah. Completely it's, incredible. It's worth, you know, you say they make it out alive by the skin of their teeth and it was a near-death experience. That will continue to happen for Tesla over and over and over again in the coming years. I mean, like the the amount of financial engineering that it takes to keep that company alive and the amount of, you know, spikes in production and all that, that, that we've all watched them go Funding through. secured. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it would be nice if the uh, you weren't triggering SEC investigations, like that would make it easier. Yeah. But the point that I want to make here is to contrast SpaceX because there are places where SpaceX definitely puts it all on the line. Um, but they were kind of out of the woods at this point. They didn't yeah. have the constant near-death experience after this that te- that Tesla would have. SpaceX is a company that very, very quickly grew from this ragtag bunch of guys that smelled bad and were all sleeping in a room in the quad um, to, to suddenly having guaranteed revenue if they could come through on some promises. So they staffed up aggressively. They got huge um, and they turned into a grown-up company. And of course, you know, they... They um they kept a lot of their same culture. I mean, Elon famously has these weird interviews that he did for the whole first thousand people and all the engineers after that. And um, you know, it's a very different company that's still aggressive on vertical integration. That's still, you yeah. know, a lot of the same principles. But like, they weren't on the verge of dying constantly the way that we we described Tesla in that, yeah. that last episode. Yeah, this is the moment when it like it's it's all a step change at, at this moment, and and again, like I, I think it was was all the way back to Gwen saying like, no, no, we got to go. Like, 
this is the market. We got to go after these contracts. Um, and then having Mike as, as head of NASA and like having this come through. Um, yeah. So the other thing, they get, so, they, so now they got to make the Falcon 9 work. But again, because Tom had, Muller had designed this modular in a modular fashion, like they know the Merlin engine works now and the Kestrel, yeah. you know, second stage engines. It's a lot easier, even like you said, Ben, with stringing together an octo web, which is the 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 uh, configuration that they have them in together. But it's a lot easier to go from you know that to building a whole brand new engine to take up uh, a, a rocket the size of the Falcon Nine. The other thing they have to do though is they have to make a capsule uh, to go on top of it. So they're not just <laughs> taking satellites up; they got to take a a spaceship up uh, now, an unmanned spaceship to to bring cargo to the ISS, but a spaceship nonetheless. And so they, <laughs> David, I would have poke funny here from it. The, the um, so the, in the wait, but why article, one of the best lines is, uh, uh, when he's describing the thing that I did with each component of this, the, the rocket, he's like, and of course the thing that sits on top is a, <laughs> a, a spacecraft or if you're nine, a spaceship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, I thought you were going to go with the other part of that post where, um, you know, of course these things all look like, uh, back to childhood oh, humor. Yeah, like phalluses. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, basically we're all nine phallus. years old, you know, with everything that's happening here. For sure. Um, well, well, is it worth talking about a little bit of context around the space industry around them at this point? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. So I alluded earlier that, uh, you know, SpaceX has been heavily revenue funded and, uh, you know, lots of that by NASA. Uh, There's a great uh, publication, which is uh, uh, the great thing about NASA is it's a a government agency. So everything's public. So there's this audit. It's called Audit of Commercial Resupply Services to the International Space Station. And this was published in in 2018 that has this great diagram of, you know, uh, money that flowed to different companies, SpaceX, Boeing, Orbital, Sierra Nevada, others, um, and and what it flowed for, all the different programs, be it commercial crew or or shipping uh, people up. And SpaceX has received $7.7 billion in contracts from NASA for launches, which is, is, is astounding compared to a company that would be trying to sort of do as much as SpaceX has done without actually having a customer on the end of every rocket. It'd be, it'd be impossibly hard. I mean, it would, it would take so much more capital and it would change your priorities. And what SpaceX really has, has done here. And I don't think I realize this every time I'm watching one of these SpaceX launches and getting all excited about a new piece of technology um, on that rocket, which, by the way, there's a new piece of technology on every rocket. Every single mission they fly is is different hardware than the previous one because they're constantly iterating every time they do that. Almost every time, save for 10 or so, uh, there's there's a customer that's paying them money to to send that thing up. And so, you know, NASA's been responsible for 7.7 billion of that. The other thing that NASA has put in money for, which has been really interesting, is uh when you mentioned the spaceship uh David, which would, <laughs> would ultimately be called the Dragon capsule, um developing the sum total, the Falcon 9, which we're about to go into the story of, and the Dragon, that cost about $400 million of NASA's money and about $450 million of SpaceX's money to to go and develop that. And at some point, NASA did an internal audit to basically say, well, how much would that have cost us if we didn't sort of bid this out to 
to SpaceX to go and do this. You know, if we had built this the way that we built the space shuttle, how much would that have cost us? And it basically, what they find is the number is about four billion. Wow! So it is one tenth the cost. Absolutely. Like, say what you will about wow, SpaceX really got in there and scored that NASA contract, but they're they're saving NASA an enormous amount of money by sort of taking on the risk to vertically integrate all of this and making much cheaper rockets. Yeah, yeah it's actually, you know, I hadn't thought about this till down to where we're recording the episode. I suppose you could listen to everything we just said and say, um, wow, what a case of cronyism. Like, you know, this dude, right. Mike, was on the initial trip to Russia with Elon and then he's head of NASA and like, of course, they get the contract. I don't think that's what's going on here at all. Like, this is a combination of several people, uh, all the spoke, the folks at SpaceX and Elon, Mike at NASA, lots of other people in the government and the DOD coming together and saying like the industry needs to like innovation has died and progress has died in this industry and we need to change the way it works. And if we can do that, you know, maybe we can get people excited and recording podcasts about a space launch again. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> um, yeah. And build a real industry. Yeah. I mean, this is an actual great example of sort of a win-win uh, where, you know, uh, they're, they're able to enable a company to bootstrap itself by, you know, S- SpaceX now owns and operates rockets that NASA is not paying them for and missions that NASA is not paying them for. So, you know, on the one hand, you could say, hey, come on, that's that's uh, taxpayer money that's now going to allow this company to generate profits and enterprise value all on their own. Well, it's a win-win because it costs the taxpayers a lot less to get these these missions done. And I think it's uh, it's just this really interesting example where, I don't know, the, who loses here? Probably just the the congressman who's uh who represented districts where there was a sub 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 contractor and they were you know winning uh winning on sort of bureaucracy to to be able to win those contracts but uh, yeah yeah it's a it's a great example of a growing pie um so this is probably a good time to to give a little context on the industry around spacex because they're not the only people that NASA is trusting to go and send stuff up. They're awarding contracts to other people. Um, they're a big incumbents. So what the heck? This startup isn't just going to come in and win the one point whatever billion dollar contract and everybody else goes home. And, you know, that, that's not how this is going to play out. So what's happening in the industry around them? Well, in the space industry to date, uh, the at least for governments, the goal has really been build a really extravagant machine to do one thing where price is basically no object because either we're trying to win the space race or we're, you know, calling it a part of national defense or that's the lineage of whatever we're currently working on. So that's the only thing that we know that it costs. So we're just going to keep going. You know, these things are funded by the military and NASA and all the stops were pulled out for reliability and performance. And, you know, we talked about how it's very subcontractor driven here. So the if you were a sub sub subcontractor and you could make your thing slightly more reliable or slightly more performant, even if that's not totally necessary for that, you know, practical purpose for that mission, you know, you do it anyway to kind of win the bid. And so you can almost think of these existing space incumbents um, like United Launch Alliance, who will go into detail on 
uh, as sort of the intel of this world and <laughs> intel today, where SpaceX is a lot more like the arm. And the reason I draw this comparison is, you know, Intel made much more powerful chips for for computers, but notoriously lost in smartphones. Um, but, you know, those chips were hotter, they were bigger, and they were more expensive, which is fine when we all had desktops. And SpaceX being like these arm chips, you know, especially early on and having this, you know, sort of toy rocket with the, uh, the, the Falcon 1 worked under a very different set of requirements. And it ended up building a completely different system, one that was cheaper and they could iterate on it very quickly, shipping up a different rocket every single time. Especially because they controlled the whole stack. Right, exactly. But <laughs> initially, it didn't seem very useful for anything. I, I, I don't know for sure, but this feels like it could be a case of, uh, of disruptive innovation here. Yeah, um, looking like it. I mean, the Falcon 1 definitely looked like a toy to a lot of people in the industry. Right, absolutely. You don't look at the Falcon 1 and say, well, they're, they're just a few years away from resupplying the, the ISS and probably sending people up to it too. Like, that's just not, it's not your natural inclination there. But David, as you were mentioning, like the design requirements around a lot of the other stuff that they would send up in the meantime was totally changed with these small satellites, CubeSats, um, commercial space sort of developing. So uh, getting back to United Launch Alliance, who I mentioned there, and I think they're important to understand in the context of this story. So Lockheed Martin and Boeing had both been longtime government contractors. They built uh, amazing things to their credit, still build amazing things. Uh, and and a, f- a few examples, you know, Lockheed made that big orange tank on the space shuttle that we all know and is iconic. And I think still one of the most elegant, you know, when you see the space shuttle launch videos, that still to me is this romantic version of space that... Uh, in, in some ways, the, the, the SpaceX rockets aren't as beautiful and don't just sing space to me the way that that shuttle design did. The, they also made the Hubble telescope and the, the Mars lander. So, you know, the, the, the Phoenix. So lots of um, really storied stuff that they manufactured. Boeing, on the other hand, made everything from the lunar rover back in 1971 to the actual space shuttle orbiter itself. So longtime space companies. So here we are in 2006, Boeing and Lockheed, and I think it's important to understand their motivations because then you really get the context for what people thought the space industry was. Boeing and Lockheed had decided that the one real customer that they were both doing work for um, was the U.S. government, but the government didn't have enough business for both of them to justify their massive size. So by combining the manufacturing and research work of the two companies, this would be a cheaper and safer way to get the same stuff out the door. Boeing already had the, the Delta... Uh, Lockheed had the Atlas, you know, these existing rocket programs. It it, kind of sounds like a good idea, unless you've heard this story before um, or a story much like it. The first thing I want to tell you is you you don't need to look any further than the ULA logo to discover that everything was basically designed by committee. Uh, Something where ULA had a massive advantage with all the existing contracts that the two companies had. They actively continued to work on the space shuttle program for another five years after this. They they just had years of knowing how the industry worked. But what they didn't see was that the industry was go- undergoing this massive change. You know, for one, with other potential non-U.S. government customers, there could be this real commercial industry. Uh, and that was something that the U.S. had basically lost to mm-hmm. nations who could launch stuff cheaper like Russia, the China. Russia and China, yeah. China, yeah. Through all, we haven't talked about China. China was... Um you know, he, he, I think uh, Vance wrote the Elon Musk book in, uh, when did it come out? Like 2014, 15, maybe? Somewhere no, in there. 16. Um, at that point in time, you know, it was the, the Russians were still 
predominant in space, but China was making a push. Now China, like China and their long March rocket, like, like space today, uh, Ben, correct me if, if I'm wrong, but is, is a two horse race between SpaceX and China. And, uh, it's crazy. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, and I think Elon certainly looks at it that way. Um, Another thing that I didn't really realize was that uh, there's this great talk linked in the show notes. Um, it's a relatively underviewed video on YouTube of uh, Gwyn Shotwell giving a, a small fireside chat to some industry insiders in um, 2014. And she points out that the U.S. was competitive in commercial space sort of in the up, up till the 80s or in the 80s, but it has basically lost it since then. And that, that was the case really until... Uh, you know, until this reignition of a of a com- of a commercial space industry here. So, long story short, ULA was completely unsuccessful in capturing a commercial market in the U.S. You know, if you if you think about it, it's it's actually a, a huge failing on their part because there were tons of commercial satellites starting to go up. You have Directv, who sort of owns and operates tons of satellites in order to to. Um, provide their mm-hmm. service. You have intelligence satellites, you have surveillance, you have research concepts, you have startup companies. David, you mentioned these CubeSats. Like ULA managed to capture basically zero of this because they were focused on winning contracts from the US government. And you know, there's more to blame than ULA themselves. Uh, international traffic and arms regulations in the 90s sort of built up barriers. But the biggest problem was Boeing and Lockheed Martin just didn't compete anymore and so everything got so bloated and expensive when they just combined into one one big behemoth and so you know you might see the opportunity here and uh you know if you do then you are similar to you know elon and gwyn and everyone else who sort of saw this gap and then decided hey we're gonna go build a freaking cash cow of a business in the falcon 9 and we're gonna go shoot that gap yeah really well ben you said it mentioned a minute ago that um i think over the life of spacex thus far they've received what just under eight billion dollars uh from the government um now by our calculation spacex is obviously a private company but you can tell by their you know uh launches and launch manifests are public um we think based on sticker price for Falcon 9 launches, of which there's now been over 80, right, um, that they've done? Yeah. I think over uh, 80. 86 launches um, and somewhere around 55 on the future manifest. Yep. And something like 22 of those-ish are for government and the Dragon program. Um, the rest of it, they've probably made just about that same amount, another $8 billion, give or take, in commercial revenue from, you know, other governments launching satellites from commercial satellites from all sorts of stuff. Yeah, I don't I don't think it's quite that much. I think it's probably about half that, but um if the revenue mix will definitely start to skew toward commercial as we sort of uh see them fly out their backlog. You know, there's all these committed launches right. that they have that they haven't launched yet um that you know, you're right. I don't. I definitely don't think it's more than the um, U.S. government right now. By the way, private company, so who the heck knows? Right. Um, but if you just sort of add up the sticker price of uh, you know 60 million times the number of uh, of commercial launches that they've sent up, which are probably I don't know 40, 50, 60 somewhere in there. Yeah, you're right. You're in the the single digit billions. Yeah. So. Um so yeah, it, uh, it all, you know, we'll move kind of quickly. <laughs> it's funny to move quickly through all the amazing technical, 
and engineering feats that SpaceX has accomplished since then. Totally. But I think Ben, you you hit the nail on the head. Like getting this contract, th- this was the moment that like made the company. Uh, getting that initial NASA ISS contract. R- real quick before we move on, because I know I just threw a bunch of shade, and I want to. I always want to make sure I like do right by someone rather than just blasting them on the show. ULA has since replaced their CEO. Um, they're actually working with Blue Origin now. Um, That's right. And, and designing a new rocket called the Vulcan. Um, and hoping to use, uh, or I think they are going to use Blue Origin um, engines on there. And so Blue is actually commercially selling um, those engines to uh, to ULA, which is is kind of amazing. To think. What, one more digression on ULA here. I, I can't help but do this. They The supplier that they have for the engines on, I think it's the Atlas V. I'll correct myself later if I'm wrong. But their their main, they're basically their competitor to the Falcon, either Falcon Nine or Falcon Nine Heavy. It, it uses Russian engines. Oh, interesting. And the this is the main U.S. government contractor for sending up things like intelligence satellites. And the current iteration of that uses Russian engines, of which the Russians have decided for the U.S we don't want to keep supplying you with those. So they've stopped. Like there's only something like there, there's some number in the single digits or teens of, of those engines in country in the U S that like that, uh, ULA can use. Mm-hmm. And so like, I, I think it's called the RD 180 is the, it's the Atlas five is the, is the rocket. Like ULA is in this position where th- the world is closing in on them from every direction. They're running out of the engines that they can use for these launches. Uh, SpaceX is massively undercutting them on price, which we'll talk about here in a moment. And like the the clock is just ticking with their basically their one customer looking to them and going, wait, I'm sorry, in what ways are you better? And so, you know, they're going to try and run out of the house before it burns down with the, the new Vulcan program and partnering with Blue. But, um, you know, I... They're a powerhouse and will continue to win contracts for a while, but, uh, you know, they are certainly SpaceX's number one enemy. Yeah, indeed. Well, you know, it's, um, disruptive innovation (laughs) coming to the launch market, uh, the, the space shipping market. So it was end of 20, 2008 when SpaceX gets the, um, the contract from NASA for the ISS resupply pretty quickly within 18 months they have a successful test flight of the falcon 9 which again they'd already been working on and then uh, so that was june 2010 and then only six months after that in december 2010 they have a successful test flight of the falcon 9 plus the dragon capsule which they've engineered from scratch you know in-house at spacex and it, it takes a little while longer after that but on may 22nd 2012 the first real dragon mission reaches the iss they do the first of the 12 resupply missions and this is just incredible i mean i remember this happening like a private company has made a Mm -hmm. not just a rocket but an entire spacecraft and operated it and sent it to the iss you know again like elon said um with the first uh with the first successful falcon one launch like this is the stuff that countries do not companies and here's spacex um you know, doing it, uh, it's just, uh, just crazy. Yeah. And, and, and to layer onto that, the reason it's called dragon is, uh, uh, Elon named it after, uh, the Peter, Paul and Mary song, puff the magic dragon, where basically it was to, to give the finger to everyone who said he could never do it. And, you know, you're, you're sort of chasing the dragon, um, and saying, look, here it is. I did it. 
Yeah. And I think the, um, I think the ISS, as they were, they were pulling in the dragon said something like, uh, Houston, we've caught ourselves a dragon here. Something like that. <laughs> we've got a dragon by the tail. Um, then the next year in 2013 to what we were talking about, about using these, you know, all the technology they built for the government, uh, in the commercial sector in September, 2013, the first commercial Falcon nine launch takes place. They launched several Canadian satellites, um, up into orbit, you know, less, uh, just about a year later. And, uh, in then in 2014, so they complete six Falcon nine launches, uh, in 2014 in 2015, they complete seven Falcon nine launches, including the first successful test of a new program with NASA for the crew dragon, which is what's going to happen on Wednesday. The first step towards what's going to happen here, um, takes place in 2015. And then at the very end of 2015, this is the other big, big thing we want to talk about. The one more thing they land a rocket. (laughs) Do you remember when this this happened? Just a holy, holy God moment. I just, I, it, 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 is so unnatural. I remember thinking that when it was happening, it was like this moment of sci-fi. Yeah, I was, uh, I was traveling because it was over the holidays. It was like late December. Yeah, of, it was uh, of uh, 2015. That's right. It was right after we started acquired. Yeah, and it was, uh, it was on the drone ship, and so. Uh, no, uh, no, it was first was on land. Uh, the drone ship the didn't first come until was on later. land. First was on land. Yep. Yep. So they had to do the boost back burn to they were the they had done time. several attempts. So here's here's how it goes down. So all the way back in 2011, Elon and the team had started thinking about this. And it was the analogy we talked about earlier, like it's crazy that you would build these massively expensive things and then drop the analogy them in the ocean. Is every time you fly a 747 from New York to London, just throw it away afterwards. Imagine yeah. how expensive airline tickets would be if that were the case. So they start working on the technology in 2011 um, to land rockets. And people think this is impossible. Like the laws of physics, people think won't allow it. And uh, so they call the program Grasshopper. And then in March 2013, then Grasshopper, they're, they're just sending these, building these short rockets, shooting them up, not into space or anywhere near space. And they're just trying to land them. They've land their first Grasshopper in 2013. And then Ben, what you might be thinking of, in 2014 in one of those Falcon 9 launches they're like they're pretty quickly getting this tech into production they try and land in April 2014 a Falcon 9 um rocket on on a drone ship uh oh, and it falls over that one blew up yeah, yeah that blows it up it got so, really close though got really close yeah uh <clears throat> then the second attempt January 2015 that fails the third attempt fails it's just like the first uh getting that first falcon one up and then finally the fourth attempt was uh was on land because it's, it's much easier to do it on land on, on the ocean like the you know it's on the ocean like the ship is bobbing right. up and down and moving right. around um they successfully land the first uh the first uh, time on on land in december 2015 then they have two more fails a, in the ocean and then in april 2016 they successfully land the 23rd falcon 9 launch on a drone ship um followed by a the, second successful landing the, crazy. of course i still love you drone yep. ship yep yeah this is that's right it was on land it's it's interesting thinking about this because the way that SpaceX lands these look looks really unnatural. Like if you, I, I remember a lot, um, watching uh, the first Blue Origin 
rocket that went to space and came down and successfully landed back on Earth, which they actually beat SpaceX to. So SpaceX was doing the grasshopper stuff first, but Blue Origin flew a rocket not to orbit, but above 100 kilometers above the Earth. I mean, that, that's a it's the formal definition of space, or I think it's the Karman K- K- line. I don't know exactly Something how to like pronounce that, yeah. it, but yeah. Um, and you know, SpaceX sort of was the first then to beat them to that big milestone of of getting to orbit and then landing back down. But if you watch like Blue Origin's rocket do this, it, it sort of seems more natural. They sort of decelerate and then it lands kind of gently. And the way that it works for SpaceX in the industry, the way they sort of refer to it is as the hover slam or in a much less delicate way of referring to it. People call it a suicide burn where basically what they do is they put just one of the nine engines that, you know, they turn one of those nine engines on. And even at the minimum thrust from one of those nine, if you just leave it burning, it will decelerate the rocket and then it will go back the other direction. Like these are just, those Raptors are so crazy powerful. The, and I should mention too, the Raptors are flying today have twice the thrust of the Raptors they started with um, in the original Falcon 9. So like their iteration, they just managed to I think it's still the Merlins. The Raptors are the the engines for the Starship. Oh, you're right. Okay, cool. I was referring to the wrong thing. Yes, the Merlins have gotten um, uh, twice as, as performance. So anyway, they they turn just one of the Merlin engines on as it's sort of decelerating. And the reason they call it the hover slam is it comes in so fast and then just at the exact right time, like they have unbelievable sensors on this rocket. They can uh, fire it at minimum, you know, the minimum amount of thrust just in time for it to decelerate and and hit basically, you know, zero miles per hour, zero, zero meters per second, right as it's setting down. And so it's this like magic trick every time they, they, they pull it off of uh, unbelievable sensors and unbelievable precision over when they're firing that, that engine at minimum thrust. Yeah, incredible. Um, so now, of course, the point of all of this, right, <laughs> is that you're going to reuse the rockets. Um, so in 2017, they have the first successful Falcon 9 reuse in March of 2017. Um, and 2017 was just a banner year for SpaceX. 18 successful launches, no failures, and they landed every single one of them except the few that they were that was the end of the useful life of the rocket where they were planning not to land them Um, yeah coming out coming out of 2015 this is a company that is firing on all cylinders like perfect product market fit on the business side iterating super fast launching all their r&d stuff actually into production super fast like they're 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 flying out their backlog at remarkable pace like it is it's just impressive totally um the next year in 2018, they hit their 50th successful Falcon 9 launch. They have 21 total launches in 2018, including the Falcon Heavy, which uh, is an adapted. I mean, folks have probably seen this and watched videos, but like it is amazing. So, this is three Falcon 9 rockets wired together for 27 total engines burning um, <laughs> that can bring up, you know, an incredible amount of payload and these guys and what they do is all three rockets go up and then they all land <laughs> and um, it's honestly like watching a magic trick like it's like a ballet one, anyone that watched the uh 
uh, SpaceX fly Tesla's um, uh, Elon's Tesla Roadster up with the Starman in it. Like this was on a Falcon Heavy, and then exactly that ballet of the two come down simultaneously, land next to each other on pads on land. The third sort of main booster then goes and lands on the drone ship, which um, actually that one ended up uh, tipping yeah, over. And that one's working, a lot then, harder to do uh, yeah. because that one's. Um, it's especially reinforced uh, to be able to hold on to the other two boosters. <laughs> right. Yeah, which apparently in the Block 5, which is the most recent and I think final version of Falcon 9, yeah, that they've actually figured out a way to um, to sort of fix that problem. And they're going to be able to, I suppose, catch them much more easily out in the drone ship. But yeah. yeah. So that brings us to now. There, there are a couple of things we're, we're not talking about here that we might mention uh, at the end of the episode. But um, in less than uh, 48 hours now the plan is uh one of these falcon nines is going to have a manned crew capsule dragon on it Oof. and we're going to be sending astronauts up to the international space station it's so funny i'm saying we like it's you know <laughs> like it's I us mean, like it's, it's, it's Elon, like the company thing. yeah like like SpaceX i know we're a little is. bit of a, a u.s centric show but like my gosh for a u.s company to fly you know u.s astronauts up to the iss is is uh you know, it's compelling. It's cool. Yeah, it um, it is. So this goes back to, in September 2014, NASA bid out a $2.6 billion contract to to do this. This was the point of, you know, uh, all of Griffin's work to re-architect how NASA operated with, um, with their suppliers uh, for a private company to fly humans to the ISS and, uh, and SpaceX wins it. So they last year in 2019... A big key step in this is they completed the first autonomous uh, ISS docking with a drag dragon capsule. So it was a crew capsule. Uh, there were no people on it. It was just cargo. In it was it. like a little stuffed animal, I think, that, yeah. <laughs> uh, that then the ISS astronauts went in there and showed and waved to the camera and held up the stuffed animal. That's amazing. Of a globe, I think. Yeah. Ah, um, and on Wednesday, May 27th, scheduled to bring U.S. astronauts Bob Benkin and Colonel Doug Hurley up to the ISS. Yeah. It's, 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 it's astoundingly cool. I mean, it's just what a time to be alive. Yeah. So the items that people might think about in SpaceX that we haven't dove into here, cause, um, we might talk about a little bit, but (laughs) there's so much to talk about, obviously, uh, are obviously Starlink, their own small satellite communications, broadband communications, internet network that they're developing um the starship which is the future ben you alluded to this they're going to be retiring the falcon program and the dragon program and uh merging everything into one giant spacecraft the starship which A will eventually go to mars thing rocket of some <laughs> sort the spaceship or this yes the starship the starship yeah <laughs> which i we, wish was still called the bfr i know so cool um they've had a successful engine test for that. So that work is well underway on that. And, uh, and then there's the little thing called the boring company. Yeah. Which, uh, I think is something like, like it ended up spinning out and SpaceX is a minority investor along with Elon. Yep. So Elon owns about 90% of the company, I believe maybe a little less SpaceX owns 6%. Uh, and then there's the employee. Oh, the employees are the other minority. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So there we have it. SpaceX as of May 25th, 2020. Yep. Well, 
I, I do think before moving out of history and facts here, because we're sort of ending history and facts with the, the events that are happening Wednesday, it is worth talking about this particular contract um, because you, a skeptic could say something like, well, there's, there's lots of interesting skeptics of, of SpaceX, but one skepticism could be, why is it so impressive what they're doing? Like other countries have been flying people up to the ISS forever. Like, you know, get, get, get off your high horse and get less excited. So what? It's a private company instead of a government. So what? They maybe spend a little bit less money. Like, not that this is easy to do, but like there's plenty of other people that could do it. Well, NASA doesn't sole source crap. Like NASA always awards multiple contracts because like this stuff is super hard. And the second person or the second company that that got this same contract was Boeing. And Boeing has built a thing um, to produce, you know, the it's basically their version of the Dragon called the Starliner. But in December of last year, it, it launched a test to dock with the ISS um, and ended up veering off course. And they did manage to get it home, but basically scrubbed the mission in order to do it. Uh, and uh, and Boeing took a $410 million write-down on earnings last quarter um, as they prepare for NASA to potentially ask them to run another full test, do another full launch of the exact same thing. You know, which is actually quite telling that for Boeing, that's a four hundred million dollar expense because for for SpaceX, that would be somewhere between a sixty and a hundred million dollar expense. Yeah. Um, but well, maybe that's not fair because there's more reusability. Anyway, the 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 point that I want to make there is like this could be Boeing, you know, later this week, but it's not. It's SpaceX, and they they managed to do it, you know. Better, better, faster, cheaper, cheaper. faster, safer, more reliable. Yeah. And so fingers crossed everything goes well, but uh, it's, uh, you know, you can throw shade at Elon in whatever way that you want or at this company in whatever way that you want, but you can't argue with results. Yeah. Um, Should we talk about narratives? Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Well, um, I think there's at least three vectors that I can think of around uh, bull and bear here. Uh, one is around Elon himself by people, you know, the you could call him the savior or you can call him um, an egomaniacal sort of work you to the bone um, words we can't say on this show. So, David, any any sort of like color that you want to add to narratives on Elon? I mean, <laughs> what else could we add? Uh, it is interesting though. Like again, until really until doing recording this episode now, I hadn't, I'd obviously thought, you know, SpaceX and Tesla are at very different situations, but, um, but I think the Elon factor, the Elon randomness factor <laughs> in SpaceX is just so much less than in Tesla, you know, probably yeah. one because he has Gwen. Uh, but then also too, because the company, at least Tesla, I think is in a very good place now, but you know, six months ago, Tesla was not in a very good place. Um, and SpaceX is, so there's just kind of less, uh, even though SpaceX is in many ways in a more, um, politically sensitive position, uh, than, than Tesla, like there's just kind of less for one person to mess up right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's also a private company which is nice because if you, if you could tune out all the noise around Tesla stock and only focus on the more intrinsic stuff, 
Like, I think there'd be a lot less narratives, period. Uh, 90% less narrative around Tesla. And, uh, you know, SpaceX has that. And they also have the benefit of, um, you know, long, long-term commitments with agencies and, and governments that can always come through on that cash. And so to the extent that they can deliver, um, you know, they have guaranteed, stable, predictable revenue. The only thing that's not predictable is, you know, when are you going to crash a stage one into a drone ship and have to take a, you know multi-dozen if not hundred million dollar write-off but you know that's uh that's the hard part that comes with the guaranteed contractual revenue um the other narrative that i think is important to highlight so that one the elon one is one that everyone outside of aerospace talks about the one that's more internally debated is around reusability and so a lot of the spacex bears will tell you that's total BS that um, those things are reusable. It's total BS that even if they are reusable, that it's cost efficient. In fact, some of these people include CEOs of competing companies who when someone flags the point, well, SpaceX uh, is able to do this cheaper because they've done this, performed this miracle of engineering of reusing the rockets. Um, they'll say things like, well, you don't know their cost structure. You don't know that it's actually cheaper. And um, examples exist in the past of um, the solid rocket boosters, for example, on the, um, the space shuttle, those white ones on either side of the big red tank, those would fall back down to the ocean and then they would, they would be refurbished and then those would launch again. So this sort of thing theoretically has happened, but the difference is with things like that, um, the order of magnitude, it's probably an order of magnitude more expensive where they basically cycle out every part, scrub it clean, um, and then send it back up. And SpaceX is iterating toward, you know, this is the bull case on reusability, um, being able to just give a one or a two day inspection uh, on the rockets and then uh, and then send them back without replacing anything and only needing to replace things maybe every 10 times or so that you send it up. And right now, I think the maximum that they've, that they've sent um, a rocket back up or a stage one back up has been three times. But, you know, uh, there are very, very real cost savings uh, that that uh, that you have here from you know not having to produce a, I don't know what the cost of goods sold are on a Falcon 9, but twenty, thirty million dollar rocket every single time, and um, you know I, I think in the coming years we'll see if SpaceX is actually able to get to the milestone of um, you just need to give it a once over uh, and and forty eight hours you can fly it again, but um, there's there's massive debate over whether the reusability actually provides the type of savings that SpaceX claims. Yeah. yeah. Um, should we move on to uh, what would have happened otherwise? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> where do you even start here? There's like, there's so many moments where this all could have gone off the rails. <laughs> I mean, I think the biggest one is what if, uh, what if NASA hadn't sort of changed their, their tune on how we bid stuff out? Yeah. I mean, I think without that, the small sat market just, you know, I think it probably will, like like we said, will materialize in the future uh, and it is materializing now. But during the time period that SpaceX needed it to, it just wasn't going to. Yeah. And this is actually, I think, a big point related to, um, we didn't really talk about Starlink at all in this episode thus far. <laughs> but um, I think one of the reasons besides Starlink and providing satellite internet access being a big market and attractive in and of its own that SpaceX decided to launch this division internally was to stimulate um, 
the small set market and demand for it. Like they, now they are going to be their own first and best customer for small sats and, uh, the, um, the rideshare program that they launched where, you know, when they're sending up big stuff, having, having space available for, for little sats as well. Yeah. I want to give a little bit of detail on both of those things that you just described now that we've sort of, uh, we've tipped our hand a little bit. So for people who don't know what Starlink is, which was me probably two months ago and mostly me even a week ago, uh, SpaceX is going to put 1,200 satellites up in low Earth orbit 12, uh, around the Earth. I'm sorry, 12,000 satellites, uh, low Earth orbit. So way, way, way closer than the DirecTV satellite that needs to be out in geosynchronous, which is, I don't know, it's 22,000 miles away. Like these things are on the order of uh, 200 yeah, right. mile, miles away. So, you know, takes a rocket to get it up there, but, you know, it's uh, it's it's not it's not as far away as uh, as the old stuff is or as, as a lot of the... Um, fixed geosynchronous stuff. So SpaceX is going to launch these these <laughs> uh, twelve thousand satellites, and um, they are all going to have line of sight to each other, and they are all going to uh, be able to provide broadband internet anywhere on Earth at any time to anyone in a cost effective way. And the way that it works is is kind of a miracle. The fact that all of them have this line of sight to each other and can communicate in high bandwidth between one another, it means that the latency can be way less. So since they're way closer right now, the problem with using satellite internet is it has to round trip all the way out 22,000 miles and back. And even at the speed of light, that's still time. And so mm-hmm. you're getting you know dog crap slow speeds on uh, on satellite internet. And if you have a whole bunch of them pretty close here and they can all all communicate with each other, it's kind of okay if there's not a single same one above you all the time. As long as there's mm. something above you all the time and they can communicate with each other, you can this kind of see the, how this... This uh, is the Wi-Fi mesh network of uh, satellite broadband. Totally. It's genius. And so you might think, my gosh, that's so many satellites. That must be really far in the future. Well, they launch 60 at a time. And they've done this, I think, three times now. Like yep. they literally stack them real tight they jam 60 of them in a fairing in a nose cone of a of a falcon 9 and they shoot them up and they all sort of make a little string in the sky and they they go right behind each other and it works like elon musk has sent a tweet from from starlink internet oh no way i haven't seen that he has he tweeted something like i'm tweeting this from starlink and then he replied to himself a minute later and was like got it (laughs) and uh you know it's it's these publicity stunts but like that you can see turning into this very interesting owned and operated business where they can be, you know, it's a huge fixed cost to send them up there. It's, uh, you know, to them, uh, the cost, it, it would cost me $62 million to send something up on a Falcon 9, but, and it would cost the government something like 90 million because they have additional regulatory stuff. But for SpaceX, I don't know what their costs are, call it 40 million. Um, so it's that sort of big fixed cost mm-hmm. investment to get them up there, but they can run a profitable business and we can all, or a lot of people get their internet from Starlink and that can be a cash machine that then can bankroll future endeavors. So they're not just getting paid every launch, but they can get paid in perpetuity for a subscription to something that's already in the sky. So I know I'm dipping all over the place here in analysis and business model. And, but I, when you dip into sky Starlink there, I think it's important to sort of like what the heck that is and how real it could be and how soon it could be, you know, two, three, four years before that, that starts to be meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like the satellites are already up there. Yeah. 
Totally. And they've got competitors there too. Amazon's got Project Kuiper and SoftBank funded a company called OneWeb that's that's uh, that's doing it. But um, yeah, it's it's futuristic stuff that's well, actually Well, and SpaceX has now. the, you know, back to the vertical integration, like they have the advantage of, you know, their, it benefits all sides of the business. A, they're building this business internally. B, they're giving more, um, they're stimulating more demand for launches of which they are the primary provider. It's going to lead yep. to more launches, more vertical integration, cost comes down farther, and then you know the flywheel is just going to keep spinning. 100%. 100%. And, and you mentioned rideshare too, which is a funny word to use in space, <laughs> but it's a thing that they put on their website in the last year or so, where, by the way, you can put in a credit card uh, to, to for them to take a deposit on this, and it's it, they will charge your credit card. But you can basically pay as little as a million dollars to hitch a ride. So it's exactly what you said, David. You're sending a big satellite up. Take my little one up too. You can go to the website and you can say, I want um, I want to send up something that's 100 kilograms by 2024. And uh, like, quote me. And it yeah. is the craziest thing. I didn't thing. realize they take orders. So this is like the equivalent of an Apple Pay down payment on a Tesla on the website. Absolutely. Do you know if, uh, if Shopify uh, powers it? Like Tesla? I don't know. That would be amazing. Know. That's a good question. <laughs> the design is pretty similar between the Tesla website and the SpaceX website. Yeah. I, I wonder if it is Shopify. Um, the, yeah. Like, just because I don't want to talk about this twice, I'm going to pull forward my my um, my playbook thing now about, uh, about the pricing there. It, it is a massive disruption to the entire aerospace ecosystem that SpaceX has a pricing page. Like it is the craziest thing that you can go to to there there's the rideshare thing, but then there's also like literally just a PDF that you can click and pull up and it's like, do you want a Falcon 9? It's $62 million. Do you want a Falcon Heavy? It's it's more expensive and I don't know what it is, but this has never been an industry with price transparency. And by mm-hmm. bringing that, it is it is just like, you know, it freaks everyone in the industry out to, for them to be that transparent. Yeah. Plus the Uber pool. <laughs> right. Right. <sighs> okay. So uh, that was what would have happened otherwise. I dipped us into playbook. Um, let's, let's keep, keep going. going. With it. If, yep. if, if someone wanted to do something like this, what is the playbook they should run? And uh, what are some of the themes that we noticed here? Oof. Oh, man. <laughs> well, okay. I'll run through some of the ones I jotted down quickly. One, I started thinking, doing the research about like, what would what would Hamilton Helmer say about like what is SpaceX's d- does SpaceX have power? If so, mm. what is it? And I think the right one. And I think this is basically what we've been banging the drum on all episode is they came out with counter positioning, like the uh, the vertical integration and the whole approach that they've taken um, with price transparency and everything to the industry. If UAL and other competitors matched that it would destroy their whole organizational structure and business model. Um, totally. So there's no way they can match it. But I think there's another interesting thing here and I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure if this is a power or how many other like industries this is applicable to, but I started thinking about vertical integration and in so many industries you see going from the disruption happened when you go from vertical to horizontal, like this is what happened in the PC mm. industry. Um, you know, and, and I started thinking about why, and I think it's often when 
if you think about like when computing was vertically integrated in the deck days, it was when you had mainframes and you had pretty few units shipped like at a very high price for each of them. Mm-hmm. That's like when it makes sense to vertically integrate. And then as volumes grow and you get a lot more units shipped and goes up and price goes down, then horizontal integration makes more sense because you can be more nimble. You can define layers of the stack where there's more power versus another and you can uh, have more profitability and outsource commodity parts. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting here is that you had this industry structure where you had and a s- extremely small n <laughs> number of units shipped like number of rocket launches around yeah. the world was extremely small and yet you had these because of the way most of it being government business you had these like horizontally integrated players that were competing within it spacex came in and said like oh no no, no. there's actually like an anti-scale economy here uh we should be vertically integrated mm-hmm. and like i uh, I can't think of any other markets that exist like that where you have like a really small number, but you have this bizarrely horizontalized industry. But it just struck me that like this was like uh, a major key to how SpaceX uh, was able to disrupt it. Well, it's interesting because in some ways, I'm trying to think if the analogy holds in the other direction. Like Apple has, has Apple vertically integrated the iPhone? they've it's well they started it vertically integrated Uh, oh boy i think there's actually a great tech repost on the fact that this is not vertically integrated that they they do make they make the things that they view as differentiable to tightly couple so like Mm. cpus um the os and and actually interesting they don't make them they design them that's true. So they but then have, they outsource thousands of right, parts. Right, right. They, they have in a them. lot of ways really outsourced. I mean, if anything, Apple is kind of like the Detroit audio manufacturer model where yep. like they design it, they make the core engine, and yep. then they have a ton of suppliers for all the other parts. Yep. But they have so much power over those suppliers that they're able to squeeze margins on those. Yep. Whereas there was nobody squeezing margins in aerospace. Everybody was happy to let their downstream partners have fat margins. Yep. 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 Because again, from the Lockheed's, the Boeing's perspectives, the higher the total price, the better, the more money they made because they were just getting a straight percentage. Yeah. So interesting. It's funny. I I didn't articulate it quite the same way you had, but I tried to write out like the bullet points of the business model, which is like, one, get paid exorbitant fees, but not as exorbitant as everyone else for every launch. NASA is willing to pay this because the old world competitors had crazy high cost structures and importantly, no reusability hasn't been important yet, but will be. And so what I, th- I think they're gross margin positive on every launch now on the first try, even without reuse. I'm not totally sure, but that's what, what um, some estimates suggest. So then two is take those profits to fund the development of more reusability and more lower cost systems. Three, make even more margin from doing that and getting paid for those contract launches of satellites, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Four, enjoy these fat margins while everyone else is trying to catch up to reusability and trying to vertically integrate or squeeze all their suppliers. And as a data point here, you know, SpaceX charges less than their competitors, but obviously well above their their cost basis. Um, if they're actually able to harvest all this margin there, they would have been giving away by vertically integrating. Um, the data point is that Falcon 9 missions 
even to the U.S. government with with the additional thirty million in Costco for under a hundred million dollars, and ULA's contract that was. I can't remember which one, but basically has all of the launches at 400 million. Yeah. And so like, there's just so much margin in there. So then then component five, use the funds from these fat margins to fund their own owned and operated businesses like Starlink or like the, the Mars stuff that I think we'll talk about here, where basically SpaceX themselves will be able to charge for, for those owned assets on an indefinite basis. Like they're able to like bootstrap the production of rockets using NASA and then bootstrap their their owned and operated business with all this margin that everyone let them play with. It's like this yeah. two-step bootstrap. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Um, a couple of the quick ones I want to hit on. Uh, one, um, we've alluded to Blue Origin a little bit on this and um, that's probably another episode for another day, but I just, you know, yeah. with different strategies, different approaches, but it strikes me as interesting back to the whole, you know, uh, um, fun analogy I use was mo money, mo problems. Like uh, <laughs> Bezos is putting a billion dollars a year into Blue Origin. Uh, Bezos is selling a billion dollars in Amazon stock that could be used for right, funding for Blue, Blue Origin. But uh, certainly a lot more than a hundred million dollars has gone in, in terms of yes. equity funding into Blue Origin. It's interesting though, like, SpaceX, in terms of equity funding, has raised so much less money. And Elon, from the beginning, was focused on this is going to be a revenue-generating, profitable business. And so, on the one hand, you'd think naively, like, oh, they have so much fewer resources. But it's, I think it's, in many ways, precisely because of that resource constraint and having to build this profitable mm. business that they've figured out how to disrupt the industry and accomplish so much. And it's just like, that's just such a theme, like we see all the time in on this show and in startups, right? Is like, sometimes you think when you're out of the gate, like you see these companies raise tons of money and like mm. think they're gonna, you know, clear out the industry and have all this success, but it ends up hurting them because like they're not forced to, they're not forced to build a real business. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about it in those terms. Um. And then the last last one, just related to that, <laughs> you know, man, is Elon across <laughs> across uh, SpaceX and Tesla? Is he just like the living embodiment of you know the Nassim Taleb uh, skin in the game? <laughs> uh, you know, um, Axiom, like this guy, like absolutely put his money where his mouth is, and you can say many things about Elon, but, um, you know, he's been quoted on, on so many occasions saying like, if either Tesla or SpaceX goes bankrupt, I will personally go bankrupt. And that is as it should be. And the number of near death moments they've had and pulled through, like if that weren't the case, if he were like, eh, you know, I'll be fine. I'll still have my McLaren. If this goes bankrupt, like would they have had the fortitude and he had the fortitude to, to pull through? Like, I don't know. I do think so. I think you're reversing the chicken and the egg there, but mm. that's why it's a chicken or the egg thing. <laughs> like the way that I would think about this is like um, Elon's drive to make this thing a success is the reason. Like it's not any monetary skin in the game. He, I mean, he cares if he goes bankrupt, but not really. Like if he really cared about not going bankrupt, then he wouldn't have doubly leveraged himself across two companies. So like clearly the thing he cares about is succeeding in this mission and that is what drove him to put all of his money in. It's not like mm, he's like mm -hmm. locked into succeeding now because of the fact that he's so invested. Yeah, but he definitely burned the bridges behind him. 
Yes. Yes. <laughs> there is no way for him to, uh, I mean, now there's a way out because there's just, he, he still owns probably 40 something percent of SpaceX and there's so much equity value there that, you know, um, yeah, he, he, there's, there's a way out for Tesla purely by, by Elon getting out of SpaceX. Yep. At this point. And it's such a good business. I mean, truly like making, making a hundred, hundred million bucks a pop. If you can do that twice a month. Um, I, I, yeah. Especially if you can reuse those rockets. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Go for it. Go for your themes. Yeah. 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 Now I've got a couple of fun ones. So, um, I want to talk about a different type of vertical integration, um, <laughs> this, which is, uh, uh, SpaceX assembles their rockets horizontally and most other companies assemble their rockets vertically. And uh, as you can imagine, when you lay them on the ground and you build them that way, you don't have to take really expensive, crazy hydraulic machines and move around. You know, you don't have to construct a a skyscraper around your rocket. And this is a, I'm, I'm using this as an example, but it's super illustrative of how SpaceX problem solved every single component of building their company in a cash-constrained environment into finding a more innovative, more inexpensive way of doing something. And like, uh, I think Elon has this interesting quote where he's like, yeah, actually the Russians, I don't know if it's Elon or Gwyn, but the Russians actually manufacture them on the ground. Most of these U.S. Mm. companies actually manufacture them vertically. But um, the the number that Gwyn cites is that uh, she says uh, SpaceX's rocket factory is 50 cents a square foot. And if you vertically integrate your rocket, no pun intended, um, stand it up and, and assemble it that way, uh, space ends up effectively costing you 12 to $18 a square foot because uh, you're, you're moving people up and down to build these rockets way the heck up in space. And it's, it's just like, it's just, just a great illustration of the incredible constraints that SpaceX was under that no other player that's ever reached the scale that they're at has been under. Yeah, man, that's crazy. That's such a, that's like a, so it's more than an order of magnitude difference in the cost. Absolutely. And like, why the F wouldn't you do that then? <laughs> Absolutely. Huh. It's really amazing. Um, the other one that we talked about is sort of new market needs. So they they sort of built a this isn't a this is from the Elon Musk book, but um, they built a Honda Accord instead of uh, building a Ferrari. And everyone else thought only Ferraris were, would would be wanted, but it turned out there's an emerging market for Accords, uh, which is unexpected and cool to see. And I think will be the the we'll see the innovation compound now that we're having all these CubeSats and things like that up there much faster than yeah. we saw with. Um, only shipping a Hubble up once a decade. Yep. Well, and it turns out even the people who drive Ferraris or McLarens, um, you know, uh, they don't want to drive those every day. <laughs> right. And then at some point, you know, uh, Tesla did, uh, SpaceX did exactly the same thing Tesla did, which is like, hey, we know how to make Accords really cheap. So now we're also going to make a really cheap Ferrari. Yep. And uh, sorry, existing Ferrari people, but you're also going to want ours. I was looking at this the other day. What is um the performance Model 3, which granted is still a very expensive car. It's um, like a $55,000, $60,000 Yeah, car. right. It, still way too it's like <laughs> Yeah, base not going to buy one. But, or something. Um, yeah. but, but the, you know, for 
call it, let's say $60,000. You can get zero to 60 time. What it's down like three below three now. Like oh, that was, I don't know, something like that. Yeah, yeah. For like, you used to have to spend a couple hundred thousand to get that, you know? Yep. That's a great point. All right. My last, is this my last, I think it's my last playbook here is customer diversification. So they are not reliant on one customer or even one type of customer. They have all these different sectors. They have defense. So within the government, they have defense and they have civil. So NASA's resupply and human contracts. Um, but and the defense, they have these Air Force contracts, among other things. Um, and then they've got the commercial business with telecom, with media. Um, and so it's it's at this point, it's a robust and diversified business that is just that was not true in space largely before now. And it's a. Uh, um, it's it's going to be defensible for them and it's going to help them weather storms in different markets yeah it's interesting well we're going to get to we'll get to this in grading in a minute so i'll hold off but yeah the question is like okay so how big is this market going to get but (laughs) (laughs) all right uh yes let's hold for grading uh lastly the thing that i want to point out i think as of may 2019 elon owned 54 percent of spacex and so they they did just raise something like 550 million since then but like holy god did that guy hold on to equity in his company he managed to he is elon is a master of many things you know he's the chief engineer he's uh, you know he's lots of things he is a master of of raising capital well I mean, it's interesting, right? He didn't raise guy. He put his own capital in, but then right. I think what's, what's interesting is, um, so we didn't talk about this in history and facts, but after they got the NASA contract and after the successful Falcon nine and dragon, after the successful dragon rendezvousing with the ISS, I think there was a lot of pressure internally from employees for the company to go public. Cause they were like, like, look, we just hit this massive oh, step right. change in yeah. valuation and like, we've been killing ourselves here. We want some liquidity. Um, and Elon actually wrote a memo, an email to the company with the reasons why he thought like they should like going public isn't as good as you think, you know, and he's lived huh. through all this at Tesla. Um, huh. But in the wake of that, they started doing these regular um, fundraisers, but I believe most some of the capital may have been primary but i believe most of it was secondary for employee to buy out the employees um, interesting liquidity and i think elon was pretty outspoken about this he said like this is like i'm gonna do this this is gonna be a much better solution for spacex we won't have to be a public company we can get employee liquidity we've got this massive long-term vision of getting to mars like um right yeah so i i actually don't think that the money was raised for the company mostly Interesting. Well, that that speaks even uh, better to the profile of the business than that. You know, they've been able to to fund with at, at least uh, gross margin profit dollars rather than funding the business with uh, with all new equity capital. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I don't think SpaceX is a profitable business, but I do think they're profitable on a unit basis. Well, and uh, I believe Gwen has said they have they have operated profitably in certain years. Huh. Wow. I mean, I'm sure they're not now, now that all the R&D is happening in uh, both Starlink. Well, I mean, first of all, they lose money every time they launch a start, do a Starlink launch because that yep. could have made them 90 million bucks from someone else. And they've um, estimated it's going to take $10 billion in capital to get that all. Whoa. Built enough. Crazy. 
and then the other thing they're they're spending tons of money on is the r&d for the the starship yep so um but yeah interesting that those are mostly secondaries All right, uh, value creation and value capture. So <laughs> I'm going to be very brief on this. This is a two-part segment that we usually do. The first part covering um, of all the value that they created in the world, did they do an effective job of capturing it? Uh, people who do a good job of this are Google. People who do a bad job of this are Craigslist. Um, and then the second piece, you know, did they actually do value creation in the world uh, at all? Or did they maybe... S- either destroy value like we've talked about on many episodes with SoftBank backed companies um, or did they uh, perhaps just shift value from one person's pockets to another person's pockets I think it's just like an absolute no-brainer that it was new value creation in the world enabling new markets accelerating markets uh, and they're doing a bang-up job capturing value from it yeah totally a little uh a little opaque because they're a private company to know yes. on part one, but it seems like yes. But oh my god, if there were ever a no-brainer on part two, like you said on this show, like there is no reasonable argument. You can, I mean, I'm sure there's some arguments, but like <laughs> to my mind, there's no reasonable argument to be made that like SpaceX did not like having it exist is not good for the world. You know, right? All right, grading. So. There's never been a transaction, which is normally what we would grade. If you're new to the show, the way this section works is uh, big company buys little company. We grade, uh, in in hindsight, how good of a use of capital was it for big company to buy a little company? Was it as good as Instagram or as bad as AOL? Uh, And, um, you know issue a letter grade. The way that we do that in this world where there hasn't been a transaction yet is talk about what would an A plus be or, uh, you know, what would an F be and maybe what would a a C look like. Um, And in this case, because I don't think we're talking about it IPOing or, you know, somebody um, buying them, I think we're basically just going to talk about what does an end state look like for this company in each of these, um, in each of these scenarios. And uh, David, you asked the question earlier, which I wish I could reach through Zoom and and slap you for, which is, well, really, how, <laughs> come on, how big is the market? And then it's called um, foreshadowing. <laughs> like, sure, we could talk about a market for how many of the people without broadband would pay for broadband. Um, and sure, we could talk about both the commercial and the government markets for launching satellites. But how big is the entire Mars economy going to be in 2300, you know, like there, there is some future where the, what we're talking about here is the GDP of Mars and the GDP of Mars with a productive capacity of a, of a million people on it. And I know I sound like a nut job for (laughs) for throwing that out, but like that is Elon Musk's a plus case here is like, that's the whole goal of this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, okay. Is that, do you want to say more or do you want me to jump in? I'm painting. That's the A plus here. Like it is nothing shy of we figure out a multi-step process to get people to Mars reliably, cheaply, safely, and build a society and economy there. Yep. Well, now the interesting thing though is, so usually when we do this, it's so funny with <laughs> SpaceX, the usual rules don't apply. We, <laughs> we provide a, um, a, a time frame, a time horizon of like five years. Uh, That's fair. So the interesting thing about SpaceX versus I think a lot of other 
new age space companies, not all of them by any means, but certainly there have been many new age space companies in the past several years that have had a similar a plus case of like something like the <laughs> Mars economy or like, um, you know, planetary resources, right. Or like, we're, you know, gas stations in space, uh, mining, mining asteroids. Um, the problem with those companies was it was, it was a, it was a binary. Yeah. We get to that a plus in some far future state. There's nothing along uh, the way. What's yeah. amazing that Elon and SpaceX have done is they've stair-stepped up to it. It's like, oh, well, okay, first we're going to become a, you know, um, uh, we're going to build rockets and then we're going to become essentially a space shipping company. Well, and then we're going to be a satellite company and uh, provide internet pro- uh, uh, satellite broadband. Well, then we're going to spin off the boring company because actually if we're going to be on Mars, like we need tunnels to live on Mars. So we're going to need that anyway. And actually that's useful on Earth. Okay, then we're going to supply the ISS and we're going to do uh, uh, we're going to do um, the Dragon program with NASA. And it's like every step along that, like you can hit an A plus in each kind of five year time horizon. Yeah, that's a fair point. I also shouldn't have said 2300. I said that because I, I couldn't think of the <laughs> right. timeline is to actually get a million people up there. But like it's much sooner. But yeah, you're right. Like the the. There are there are potentially incremental A pluses. I don't know what the the I actually should know this, but don't what the goal of Starlink is is how much internet do we intend to provide to how many people and at what price? Like there's some there's some um, business case for like uh, just operating Starlink is a really yeah. good business to be in and might be a thirty billion dollar enterprise value thing on its own. I don't know if that's true. I suspect it's not, but. Well, we, we, uh, what well, it might be, I mean, it might be more. We know that they expect to put $10 billion worth of CapEx into it. Um, both from that's CapEx funded by cash flow from other projects within SpaceX. They have raised a, a lot of the primary capital that they've raised recently has been for Starlink. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, like, would you, would it be reasonable to, put 10 billion dollars of capex into something if you didn't think you could generate 30 plus billion in in revenue out of it yeah that's a good point i haven't seen the pitch deck but i'm sure it says something like that yeah uh not to mention you know they'll they'll continue to um they'll continue to sort of pull away i think in the launch market um and and uh um I mean, Falcon Nine is just a workhorse and a and a and a and an amazing business of of doing these launches. And so, for the next three four years until they really have uh, Starship humming, um, if they can actually take up to a month, there's there's a you know they'll do what is what's uh, sixty million times um, times twenty four is uh, one point four billion a year in revenue just from the um the falcon 9 launches so i don't i don't know what kind of multiple you want to apply to that or if we should figure out actually what the ebitda margin is and and do it (laughs) that way but um yeah it's good business all right should we move to the uh f case f yeah i mean there's some f cases that i i don't want to say so i'm not going to um uh but one would be that factors outside of uh, SpaceX's control uh, cause 
more than one launch uh, to to go poorly, or in fact, an important launch to go poorly, uh, and and basically make it so that they don't get orders anymore. Um, this business is incredibly brand dependent in a way that uh, um, other businesses that are not this high risk are not. And uh, I think it would be very uh, uh, their revenue could go to zero much more easily than than other businesses because of that risk factor. Yeah. It's interesting though. I mean, at the same time that risk factor, well, cuz a private company has never really been doing this kind of stuff before, but that risk yeah. factor has always existed in this industry. Like this is a dangerous industry. Um and in fact, there have been terrible, you know, accidents in the history um you know, of, of the industry made by governments. Um, yeah, but we, I mean, we canceled the shuttle program. Right. But was that, that wasn't because of, um, the Columbia, was it? I don't know for sure. It feels like a compounding factor though, that it was both expensive and unsafe. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, hopefully we don't, uh, face that particular case, but, but it's a good point. I mean, like, you know, as Elon makes the point, and we've made the point several times on this episode, typically this stuff is the domain of countries, not companies. Um, and so there might be all sorts of unforeseen uh, factors that pop up here. Totally. Yeah. You could have governmental problems. I mean, you, you could have problems where uh, foreign governments aren't able to do business with American companies. I mean, the, yeah. the risk factors that would go on this company's X1 are just at such a bigger <laughs> scale than you would ever see in, in most uh, for most companies. Yeah. Well, so here's one. I mean, I guess this is a sort of a, um, F scenario. Well, I think kind of is an interesting lens through which to look through grading here, which is if they're ultimately successful in everything that they're talking about here and they get a million people to Mars, what is What does that actually mean? Like, there's a lot of questions they're going to have to get figured out. Like is SpaceX like the government of Mars? Like, um, <laughs> I was wondering this Like, too. is this a company or is this a country or is this like, we're starting to sound like pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty sci-fi uh, dystopian future here. I mean, like if Columbus makes it to the US, does the Dutch East India company own North America or does right. like Columbus, the Spanish government, you know? It's a good question. Yeah. Um, over time, whoever has the army that's able to, to conquer it probably owns it. Yeah. I mean, just looking at history as a, as a guide. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, this sounds sort of crazy, but I, you know, Elon talks about this, that this is sort of, um, he hopes the same type of analogy with Mars is like, you know, it's been 300 plus years since there was a new world. Um, you know, if this happens, <laughs> yeah. there will be a new world and like, well, who owns that world? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you've thought about this question or you know the answer to this question, um, please reach out. Join us in the in the Acquired Slack, acquired.fm slash Slack, or email us at acquiredfm at gmail.com. Um, that, this goes with everything else in the episode, too. I'm sure there's lots of people here who are more sort of aerospace native than we are and, and certainly lots of sci-fi geeks. So, um, yeah, I think uh, we'd love to to think more about this with uh with folks yeah i suspect this won't be our last uh space episode too (laughs) (laughs) yeah or space episode broadly yeah totally 
All right, carve outs. Let's do it. It's been a while since we've had a carve out. Yeah. So much good stuff been going on. Uh, I think among much great content I've been consuming during quarantine from books to both fiction and nonfiction to um, uh, podcasts to uh, um, to TV shows to movies. I think The Last Dance takes the cake for me. <laughs> I wrapped it up earlier this week. Have you finished it yet? I haven't yet. Oh, it's so good. So good. Just like, especially like, you know, growing up watching, you know, I remember being a kid and watching a lot of those games on TV, um, especially the 98 run uh, for the Bulls. Uh, and then like just getting this super deep behind the scenes, you know, look at all of it and the portrait, not just of Jordan, but of everybody on that team. Um, so so great. I enjoyed every single second of it. I'm on episode three. I'm, I'm, I already, all the best parts are spoiled because I saw all the memes, but I am still looking forward to finishing oh, man. the, the memes are just that, the <laughs> Isaiah Thomas meme that so I met all the, I met all the yeah, criteria. Good. I don't know why. Yeah. Why wasn't <laughs> was not selected. So great. Oh, that's right. So good. Um, mine, uh, mine is, I, I, think there's some chance that this may have already been a carve out because i've recommended this so many times to different people but it's a uh, five-year-old talk by michael malbison um this one at google uh for his i think book tour or at least just discussing the book untangling skill and luck the success equation and it is one of the best hours you could spend with your time where he lays out games of skill and games of luck and every or most things are both and understanding where a lot of the different sports that you love or games that you love are on that continuum and also thinking about competitions in your life of what's more skill-based and what's more luck-based and doing this really analytical and theoretical analysis of it that is just a privilege to watch because he uncovers weird paradoxes like this one the more skill an activity requires the more luck will play a role in the yeah. outcome the uh what's that the uh, the paradox of skill right it's called yeah yep. and it's so interesting and like if you're interested in if you're a sports fan uh or if you're an investor or if you compete in anything at the highest level um it is wildly clarifying to watch this and and uh and understand sort of um what game you're in and I, yeah. I, I can't recommend it enough. So good. And uh, he wrote a book uh, about this, right? Um, same title. Yeah, and with the same title. And um, yeah, I think it was, I should go back and reread that and re, or at least rewatch the video. I remember it being fantastic. It's awesome. It's awesome. Um, well, before, before our usual sort of wrap up here, uh, we have one more um, kind of fun announcement. Uh, and... Uh, that is that David and I are going to be speaking at an aerospace industry conference uh, in November called Ascend. That's uh, 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 something that, um, you know, obviously based on both of us getting to go deep on the research here, uh, I'd call ourselves um, aerospace novices, but uh, but curious and, and uh, love diving into this stuff. Um, and, uh, and we were fortunate enough to, to get to attend and um, and do some talks uh, at Ascend. And so if if you're like us, where this stuff is interesting to you, or you think space may be the future, or you're interested in getting um, um, getting into a space-adjacent industry, Ascend uh, should be a great event. Um, hopefully we'll get to do it in person. 
but um, folks should check it out and uh, we'll put a link in the show notes if if that uh, tickles your fancy. Yeah, I can't wait for it. <clears throat> really hope it'll be in person. It'll be a, such a great, um, you know, in many ways, I think this time has, uh, for us, it acquired us personally um, and for many of our listeners too, you know, forced us to grow and obviously adapt. But, uh, you know, folks may know we, we used to do all of our episodes uh, with guests in person. We would fly to go see our guests and obviously we haven't been doing that now but uh which has on the one hand been great but on the other hand you know i miss it and it'd just be great to to hope that happens in person be there together and um and just have our community together yeah for sure well one i mean one talk i'm really excited for is uh jim uh Bridenstine, who's uh nasa's administrator who was sort of overseeing um everything about what's what's going to be happening this week um he'll be speaking there and it's a lot of uh you know, it's it's uh, as sort of high up as the um, the sort of folks go in in the, the aerospace industry. And uh, you know, one one other person who I'm sure will be a, a fascinating one to hear is the the um, president and CEO of ULA is uh, is going to be there. And so, for all the shade I just threw, I, I think it'll be really interesting to hear how they're they're sort of navigating, um, you know, <laughs> SpaceX and other competitive yeah. threats. Seriously. So, all right, that's Ascend. Check it out. Ascend events. Well, a huge thank you to our sponsor for this episode, Zoom Info. If your company wants to supercharge its ability to find, acquire, and grow customers while also becoming more efficient, it is a no-brainer to start using Zoom Info. And now they're making their automated go-to-market playbook available for free for anyone to try. Head on over to acquired.fm slash zoominfo to see this go-to-market playbook. And when you get in touch, just tell them that Ben and David at Acquired sent you. Thanks, Zoom Info. If you aren't subscribed and you're new to the show and you like what you hear, you, you totally should. You can subscribe to us in any, uh, any podcast client, or we are now sending out new episodes via email. And so you can subscribe to that on our website at acquired.fm, either in the footer or in the, the top right-hand corner there. Um, and, uh, and that way we can, we can shoot you a note when we post something new. Um, if you want to become a limited partner, subscribing gets you access to our bonus show and, uh, as mentioned, the LP calls where we get to um, interact with all of you, which will be super fun. And uh, uh, to listen, you can click the link in the show notes or go to glow.fm slash acquired and all new listeners get a seven-day free trial. Um, if you just want to hang out and uh, and chat, you should join the Slack. We've got over 4,000 people in there talking about uh, different topics of company building, news of the day, acquisitions, um, and discussing previous episodes. So I'm sure we'll be uh, chatting in there uh, after we drop this episode. With that, we will see you next time. We'll see you next time.